Nishma Sibah Wabah Mah 
Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nahum Siegel. Welcome to a uh, Thursday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. It's Thursday, August the 8th. It is day seven in the month of Menachem Av of the 10 days that we're going to be observing the nine days because the 10th uh, is uh, on Sunday, the 9th is on Shabbos. Uh, it is day number seven, day seven uh, of uh, the month of Menachem Av, the year 5779, Tess. Um Today, Thursday at the JM and the AM, our spoken word programming continues. We have some very interesting guests. Rabbi Wine is going to be uh, presenting his lectures 70 degrees, 93% humidity, winds are west at 4 miles an hour. Mostly sunny today with a high temperature of 88. Then tonight, partly cloudy, a low 71. Mostly sunny tomorrow with a high 85 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 82 up in Guilford, New York. Our friends at Camp Misora who have another, what do they have left? About another 12 days left to camp. Uh, they're at 64 degrees. We're at 70 here in New York City as we say good morning. At JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine, his lecture on Mesilas Yesharim. It comes from the uh it comes from the um series entitled The Essential Classics. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Mesilas Yesharim here at JM in the AM. Uh we are accustomed in the Jewish world uh that people uh make the difference, and that certainly is true. But also, uh, as I hope this series will illustrate, there are books that make a difference as well. And uh, books have a a cumulative effect. A person, uh, under all circumstances, has a limited lifespan. And because of that, his generation, maybe even the next generation, can benefit from that person. But uh, 100 years later, 200 years later, 300 years later, uh, no one remembers the person. And therefore, uh, the person's influence, to a certain extent, is diffused. It's mitigated. However, books are pretty much eternal. uh, So that even after a few hundred years, uh, the book itself is still here and its influence is still present and can be considered uh, alive, so to speak, because of its uh, value and currency. Uh, The two main books that we know in the Jewish world are naturally the Bible, the Tanakh, and the Talmud. Those two books are the basis of uh, Judaism as we know it. But these are other books... Uh, of a different nature, which uh, have 
a profound influence on the Jewish world. Tonight's uh, book, uh, the one that I'm going to discuss tonight, is the Mesilat Yusharim, uh, the book that was written by Ramosha Chaim Litzato, uh, published uh, close to 300 years ago. Uh, Ramosha Chaim Litzato, just a, uh, as a whole uh, biography of him that I once spoke about, but uh, it, uh, he lived a very controversial and short life, a very tragic life. Uh, he was uh, a Kabbalist at a time when uh, there was great persecution of Kabbalists because of the Shabzite Tzvi disaster. Uh, he was misunderstood. Uh, he was placed into Cherem, first in Italy, later in France. He was driven into uh, Holland, where he was a lens grinder. And uh, then he was forced to leave Holland because his uh, enemies pursued him. Uh, Jewish people are a tough people. We wouldn't be here if we weren't, but on the other hand, it's not easy to be with the Jewish people, especially if you're a different type of person. And he was a different type of person. He did not have a beard. He uh, wrote plays. Uh, he, uh, he was very, very spiritual. And uh, he came, therefore, he uh, migrated to the land of Israel, came to the city of uh, Tzfat and later Tiberias, and then the cholera epidemic uh, that broke out, he and his entire family died, and he was uh, about 42 years old when that happened. So uh, we wouldn't know anything about him, because in his generation he was not uh, venerated. You know, the strange thing about history is that it's... Uh, it lowers people and it raises people so that uh, you have to wait a while for the verdict to come in. And many people who in their lifetime were considered to be uh, outstanding, great, influential uh, in the run of history are lowered. And many people who in their lifetime uh, suffered the indignities and were not very well respected in the run of history, are raised. He is the example of someone who was, so to speak, rehabilitated uh, and the rehabilitation begins with the Gon of Vilna and it culminates in the Musser movement of the 18, middle 1800s, late 1800s in Lithuania and the Lithuanian yeshivot after he was rehabilitated, so to speak, so then he became popular. So not only this book, which is the main book, but his other works as well, which are even more controversial, are today studied uh, universally. And uh, I would hazard to say that most of the people who read it or study it or who teach it are unaware of the fact that it's a controversial work. So uh, we can say, uh, heaven voted for him. And uh, heaven usually has the last vote in all of these things. 
Now the book, the Mesilat Yeshorim, the Gaon of Vilna said, in the first ten chapters he said, there's not an extra word. The book is a, a marvelous work of conciseness, and we can also say that the Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Litzato, to a certain extent, is the father of modern Hebrew. He does not write rabbinic Hebrew. The Hebrew that he writes is pure. It's a throwback almost to Maimonides in the Mishnah Torah or to the Mishnah itself, that type of Hebrew. But again, uh, the structure of the Hebrew and the structure of the sentence uh, makes it uh, a harbinger, a forerunner of modern Hebrew uh, as we uh, know it today. So just the language itself uh, is itself a major thing in the book. I want to share with you his introduction to the book because the introduction uh, is a classic. Uh, in the yeshivas, they used to say, uh, my Rebbe used to say, well, he said, if you don't want to study the book, at least study the introduction. Because the introduction says it all. And here I'm reading to you a, a translation by Yosef uh, uh, Liebler. There are many translations into almost every language in the world. It's one of the most translated books uh, of all of the Jewish books in the world. It's been translated into French, into Spanish, to Russian. And uh, here is the English version of it. The author says, I have written this book not to teach people what they do not know, but rather to remind them of what they already know and clearly understand. And uh, that's the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is that I'm going to tell you everything that you yourself know. But for some reason, because of your uh, selective memory, uh, because of the fact that uh, it's inconvenient to remember these things, uh, so you put it out of your mind. So I'm here to remind you. For within most of my words you will find general rules of life that most people know with certainty. However, the degree that these rules are well known and are true self-evident, to that degree are they routinely overlooked or people choose to forget about them altogether. You know, so we know, you know, we're not supposed to holler at our wives, Right? Or we know that, uh, you know, you're not supposed to uh, shortchange somebody. Or a million things that we know. But somehow when it comes to doing these things, we're not in in control of ourselves. So this is a book about self-control, about self-discipline. And really it's a book about being a good human being. Therefore, the benefit to be obtained from this book cannot be derived from a single reading, but it can be derived from a single lecture. (laughs) For it is possible that after just one reading, the reader will find that he has learned little that he didn't know before. So then what does he need the book for? Rather, its benefit is a function of continuous review. In this manner, one is reminded of those things which by nature people are prone to forget. 
and he will take to heart the duties that he prefers to overlook. His famous example, really the classic example, he says, uh, you can imagine yourself in a maze. Now, uh, one of the uh, uh, sports of kings in the medieval and even later times was to construct a maze. A maze is, uh, you know, uh, a hundred different paths. You come into the maze and then you lose your way. And how do you find your way out? Uh, if you go to Hampton Court Palace of Henry VIII, there's a maze there that uh, I got lost in. There, at least at four o'clock, they send somebody to fetch you. But uh, a maze was used many times as a a means of execution of people. They would take the prisoner and let him go in the maze, and uh, he got lost in it. He starved to death. He he died of thirst. They never came to fetch him. So he says, this world is a maze. I think that's where the word, word amazing comes from. It's the same word. It's, uh, we're all caught in a maze. And every day we make decisions. Take this path, take this path. The end of the maze is naturally our judgment, uh, what heaven thinks of us. How did we get out of the maze? Or did we get lost in the maze? He says the only way to attack a maze and that you know, I also saw this in the palace in Copenhagen in Denmark. So there they have a tower by the maze. And you climb the tower, you're able to see how to get out, right? You, because you have this overview and you see which are the paths that will lead you out of the maze. So he says here, this book is the tower to the maze. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to instruct you how to get out of this maze of life that we are all involved in and how to find our way. Now, where do we want to find our way to? So here he says there's an amazing brysa. There's an amazing piece in the Talmud, in the Meseches Avodah Zorah, written by Rabbi Pinchas ben Yoyer. Now, Pinchas ben Yoyer is one of the resident holy men of the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that Pinchas ben Yoyer was such a righteous person that even his donkey would not eat straw uh, that did not, uh, that the tithe, that the truma and the maestras were not taken from it. He had a donkey that only ate badats. It knew exactly what it was. So the Gemara always says, Ma behemton shel tzaddikim. You can see that even the dumb animals of the righteous are endowed with an intuition as to what is right and what is wrong and don't uh, make mistakes. So the righteous, certainly, we have to consider them in that vein. So Repinchas ben Yoyer is buried uh, in the new cemetery in Malot, at the, uh, not in uh, Tzvat, at the bottom, 
The old cemetery is on top, and he's buried at the bottom. Next to him are buried the 11 girls that were killed in Malot by the Arab terrorists about 20 years ago, not more. And there are many customs regarding the grave of Repinchas ben Yoyer. It's a very visited grave. So Repinchas ben Yoyer, who does not appear in the Talmud in very many instances, there's very little halacha that's quoted from him in the Talmud. But he said this b'risa, very interesting b'risa. He describes the steps that lead a person to holiness. That's the b'risa. You want to be kadosh, you want to be holy, I'm going to tell you how to do it. And you cannot just get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to be holy. Like you can't get up in the morning and say, well, today I'm a brain surgeon. Or today I'm going to run the marathon. In order to do any of that, you need training. You need experience. You have to be able to do it. I had the people in my shul in Muncie that ran the New York marathon every year, but they would run 60 miles every week. So if you run 60 miles every week, so then you got a chance to run the 26 miles of the marathon. But if you get up in the morning and you say, today I'm going to run the marathon, right, then you're, you resemble me, you're not going to make it. It just is not going to happen. So Pepinchas ben Yoyer says the same thing is true about holiness. A Jew wants to be holy, I'm going to tell you how. And here it is. The first thing is Torah. That's the starting point. Knowledge of Torah. Torah mevia lidei zehirus. Torah brings one to being careful, to being vigilant. Leads one to being, uh, uh, not to take unnecessary risks in life. Zehirus mevia lidei zrizus. Then vigilance brings one to zrizus, to enthusiasm, to alacrity, to industry, to work at it. Then zrizus mevialidei nikias. That brings a person to cleanliness. He means here spiritual cleanliness, though he talks about physical cleanliness as well. Then nikias mevialidei prishus. Cleanliness can bring a person to abstain from certain things in life that are not good for him. Precious may violate tahara, then that abstinence can bring one to purity. Tahara may violate chesidus, then one comes to the level of piety. Chesidus may violate anova, piety brings a person to humility. Humility brings a person to fear of sin. Fear of sin brings a person to holiness. Holiness brings one to Ruach HaKodesh, the divine inspiration. So that's the Brice of Repinchas ben Yoya. The book takes every one of those attributes, every one of those concepts, and defines them for us. So there are three sections in every one. First is a definition. 
Secondly, is how do we do it in practice? The third thing is what brings us to aspire and to want to have those attributes. So I'm not going to go through all of uh, this uh, book, all of these things, but there are selected parts that are just so uh, brilliant in the language, etc., uh, that uh, everyone should, uh, as he says, uh, assimilate it within one's own psyche and within one's own soul and repeat it over and over again because it will be a step up the ladder. It will get us up the tower that will be able to us to see how to get out of the maze. This, by the way, was, in the, in the, was the primer of the Musser movement. Uh, if you saw Salanter and the Musser movement, and especially how it was in the yeshivas, I remember when I was in the yeshiva yet, uh, we devoted uh, 15, 20 minutes every day to the study of this book. And uh, by the, the, uh, the Bali Musser held that this is the book that more than any other work defines what it is to be a good Jew. Uh, when I was the head of the yeshiva in Muncie, uh, I would teach this book 15 minutes a day to uh, about 100 unwilling students. But over the years, I have received many, many comments. Rebbe, I remember what you said. I remember this. I remember that. Because uh, life, uh, life when you're 15 is different than when you're 50. And uh, this book is good at 15, but it's great at 50. Because then it, it gives you this picture of how to get over what the purpose of life is. So let's just talk about a few things. He says, God created the world with Midas Hadin, as we know, the measure of justice, and also Midas Arachamim. It's based on the famous Rashi in the beginning of Chumash Breshis, that God, it says, Breshis Boro Elokim. Elohim is the name of God that represents justice. He saw that if this is a world that everybody has to be measured in a just manner, in a legal manner, the world cannot exist. Human beings are too frail, They're too prone to, for error. It's interesting. God didn't remake the human beings. He remade the system. Because he could have made a stronger human being, right? He could have created everybody to be the Chafetz Chaim. He didn't do that. So, Omad, the Rebbe Shalom, therefore, Kaviyochu, arranged that it's Midas Arachamim. And that's what we say, Hashem, Hashem. The Yud Vovke, the four-letter name of God, that's representative of God's mercy. It's not representative of justice. So the question arises, how, does, how did the two get along? So to ask that question of God is really not a problem because we don't understand God anyway, so he somehow makes it work. But we are supposed to emulate God. 
imitatio Dei. We are the imitation of the Creator. In being the imitation of the Creator, we also have to subscribe to justice and to mercy. We have it in this week's Sedra by Avram Avinu. Lasos Zdoko Mishpat. To do Zdoko, righteousness, goodness, and Mishpat, justice. Well, how do you combine, right? If I'm doing Zdoko, it's not Mishpat, right? If I'm doing Mishpat, it's not Zdoko. God expects us somehow to be able to combine it. So he asked the question. You might ask how the attribute of compassion enters into this world. Since in all cases justice is so precise, we believe that the Rabboni Sholem is medagdik, is exact, and that no act goes unrewarded or unpunished, and that the Lord is uh, the supreme accountant, so to speak, and doesn't cook the books, doesn't overlook anything. So in that world of justice, where is mercy? The answer is that the attribute of compassion is what undoubtedly holds up the world without which the world cannot exist at all. So therefore, we cannot have a world built only on justice. And a human being cannot have a life built only on justice. Because if he does, he cannot stay married, he cannot be a parent, he cannot be in business, he cannot be a teacher, he cannot live in a community, cannot be a member of society because there's no room for it. If it has to be pure justice. So he says, nonetheless, this does not rule out the function of the attribute of justice. For according to the letter of the law, and here he introduces a great idea in Judaism, He says the sinner should be punished immediately, subsequent to a sinful act without any delay. The example he gives is a person, God forbid, puts his hand into a fire, right? So he's burned immediately. In the physical world, we see that immediately, right? He he uses a knife that's too sharp and it slips, so he cuts himself immediately. So if we had a system of the world that was pure justice... So if a person commits a sin, so a bolt of lightning should strike him from heaven, which is what we would like to see. Somebody said to me today, you know, there should be a rainstorm on the on Friday, right? There should be, you know, 16 inches of rain should fall with hail. I said, you're foolish. God's not going to do that. It'll be a beautiful day. It'll be fine, because it doesn't work that way. If it worked that way, then none of us would have any excuse whatsoever. We wouldn't have freedom of choice. What gives us freedom of choice is that it does not happen that way. It's not instantaneous justice. Furthermore, he said the punishment should be meted out with anger since it is directed against one who has rebelled against the the words of the Creator. 
and there should be no way whatsoever to atone for sin. How can a person rectify what he has ruined once he has committed the act? Right? You broke... Uh, somebody uh, once... We, we had a, uh, a nice ceramic lamp in our house in Miami Beach that my wife was proud of. And... Uh, when we moved from Chicago to Miami Beach, we didn't even give the lamp to the movers that came in the car with us because uh, somehow there was a sentimental attachment to the lamp. And then uh, a guest came to the house, tripped over the wire, and smashed the lamp, which was a good lesson for all of us. And my wife uh, smiled sweetly and said, Oh, that's, you know, that's an idea. That lamp was a cheap lamp anyway. So, but you can't put that lamp back together again. Right? That's never going to happen. So it should be that way with sin also, he says. If we sin to God, we've broken the lamp. So the lamp can't be put back together again. Can anyone purge from reality the act that has been done? Therefore, he says, that's why you, that's what the act of compassion does. That's what it means, midas Beautiful idea, explanation of how Judaism views things. The attribute of compassion yields the opposite of what is mentioned above. Time is extended to the sinner. We say it on Yom Kippur, in Nilead, Yom Moso, Techakelo, to the last breath, God has patience. The possibility of repenting will be granted to the sinner. And that the act of repentance is equivalent to the uprooting of the deed itself. It's like you never, it's like the lamp comes whole again. It was all put together. That's what Midas Arachami means. So again, the three points. Midas Arachami, there's no instantaneous punishment. Midas Arachami means that there is the chance for the person to repent. And the third thing is that the repentance restores what was destroyed. What a concept. Gives a human being hope. Otherwise, we would all be terribly despondent. Tomorrow we'll do better. I can fix what went wrong. This means that since the penitent recognizes a sin, admits guilt, ponders the wrongdoing, repents and totally regrets all that was done from the outset, this regret is so complete that he wishes that the deed never had been done and he is filled with anguish, then the uprooting of the deed will occur and it will be an act, an effective act of atonement for him. So he says this is one step on the ladder. This is 
person has the ability, but only if one is able to admit that the lamp is broken. We have the ability to look at the broken lamp and say, it's whole. Or to say, I didn't do it. Or to say, what difference does it make? So the basis, he says, is this self-recognition of what went wrong so that we can improve ourselves. And that the basis of God's relationship with us is this mita sarachamim, this mita of compassion. He then says, and that's why the Bali Musar were so uh, enamored of the Sefer, is because everything he says about our relationship between man and God is also our relationship between humans and humans. So you have to be able to forgive others also. You have to be able to... Uh, to not deal in anger with others. You have to be able to be patient with others. All of which goes against our nature. And therefore he says, Midas Arachamim, that's why, just a brilliant idea, that's why the world was created first in Midas Adin. Because that's our nature. Our nature is, this guy cut me off in the lane, at the next stoplight I'm going to cut him off in the lane. I'll show him. That's why we have all the wonderful things in the traffic here in Israel. Because everybody is, you know, miata, right? Who are you? You cut me, I'll cut you. And sometimes you see it on the road that it's frightening. The way people jockey with each other. It becomes a test of will. So first, we are born innately selfish. We're born innately with Midas Adin. As the Gemara states, Yikov Adinas Ahor. Let the justice split the mountain. I don't care what the consequences are. Which we also see is that people don't care what the consequences are. And therefore, many times people, in doing what they think is good for them, are doing things that are terribly counterproductive to them. That's true in the political world, it's true in the business world, it's true even in the synagogue world. So therefore, he says, God tempered the world with Midas Arachamim, which came later. Midas Arachamim is something that mitigates the Midas Adin. Well, just as that's the relationship of us with God and the relationship of how God created the world, so too is it the relationship between humans and humans. So I have to be willing not to be angry immediately. Not to make snap judgments about people. Famous uh, story uh, about, uh, they say it about Reb Chaim Sanzer, the uh, famous Divrei Chaim, who was a very uh, precocious and mischievous child. So when he was... Uh, Six or seven years old, they already arranged a marriage for him, which was common amongst the, you know, and then naturally wouldn't be consummated for another 10, 12 years, whatever it was. But, you know, the, so they had the vort, right? They had the, uh, the, the engagement party. So he, he, he walks in, he's six years old, you know, and they dressed him up in the, in the outfit, and, you know, 
and he walks in and he tells his father, he says, that's my father-in-law. He points at him. So his father said, how do you know? He said, I hate him already. So that's, you know, that's immediate judgment, right? You see somebody the first time and that's your judgment. But Mita Sarachamim says, well, maybe, you know, we'll give him a chance. And if the person changes, so we accept that the person changes. And we don't come and say, but I remember when, which is an iser in the Torah to do. It's an iser to tell somebody, I remember when you sinned. I remember, you know, people come, I remember, you know, the teacher in fifth grade threw you out. You're not allowed to say that. And you're certainly not allowed to say that to a convert. Or you're not allowed to say it to someone who calls himself a baltruva. You're not allowed to say it to anybody. And you have to realize that if the person really changed, then what went on before never happened. Now that's a big bill. But that's what Midas Arachami means. And that's what the Gemara means when it says, Mahu Rachum Afato Rachum. God is merciful, you also have to be merciful. And we will measure merciful in those terms. So we think merciful is, you know, I, I rock the baby to sleep. Or I give charity to the panhandler. Today uh, a con woman came to my house. I knew she was a con woman. I gave her money anyway. I told her, you know, I, I'm paying you for the act. You did a very good job. I'm mean, I'm here, you know, you entertained me for 10 minutes, so I don't want you to leave empty-handed. And I gave her, and I gave her a good, you know. That's rachum, right? That's a measure of a, you know, you have to be able to do, because I'll be dean, I should call, I should tie her up and call the police, Right? So this is the concept that he discusses here. Now, he says, service of God is not on the outside, it's on the inside. Which was a precept of the Bali Musr and a precept of, let's say, the Kotzker Chassidim. There was always a precept, right? The Kotzker Chassidim on Tishabov used to put chalk on their lips so that people would think that maybe they ate. But Abali Musser, you never saw anything from the outside. My father-in-law, blessed memory, always told me he lived with the Chofetz Chaim. He said when he lived with the Chofetz Chaim, he said he was a plain person. You never saw anything. It was all hidden. It's all on the inside. Today we live in a world where it's all on the outside. The going to Vilna says that at the end of time, at the end, uh, when we come closer to the Messianic times, he said it's all chitzonius. It's all on the outside. It's the uniform, it's this, it's all the shtick. That's what it is. 
but it's really supposed to be all on the inside. He says, you already know, however, that is what is most desirable for the service of the Creator is the yearning of the heart and the pining of the soul within us. David HaMelech said, as a deer cries longingly for brooks of water, my soul yearns for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the eternal, the living God. When will I be judged worthy to come and appear before the eternal? That's an inner feeling. Most of the important things in life are inner feelings. It's not things that are expressed. It's hard to express it. The love between spouses, the love between parents and children, love. Yeah. People keep on saying, I love you, then I'm, I'm nervous about it. Because that's not it. One of the uh, travesties that's occurred because of uh, the skewed nature of society generally is that there are no internal feelings anymore. It all has to be, uh, you know, everything on the outside. For the person in whom this desire is not sufficiently kindled, it is advisable that he actively arouse himself. This will lead to the result that the desire will sooner or later become part of his nature. For the external physical movement may eventually stimulate the internal one. And it is the internal domain directly that defines his relationship with the Creator. Another idea. He says here, there is not a person, no matter what his circumstances, whether he be poor or rich, healthy or sick, who does not perceive daily numerous wonders and acts of benevolence in his situation. A wealthy person or a healthy person is indebted to the Almighty automatically for his good health, for his wealth. A poor person is also indebted, for even in his poverty, he is still sustained by the eternal miraculously or wondrously and has not allowed him to die of hunger. And the same thing, a sick person is strengthened during his relentless sickness and suffering. And the Lord does not allow him to descend immediately to the grave. It is the same thing of a similar nature, which means there is not a single person who should fail to recognize one's indebtedness to the Creator. Here he gives the idea of not being kofui tova, of ingratitude. Ingratitude is the supreme sin in Jewish life. The whole idea of respect to parents, respect to teachers, is based upon the idea of gratitude. Because whatever my father and mother are, they gave me life. Without them, I'm not here. So gratitude is the famous foundation of Jewish life. And that gratitude to people and gratitude to the Creator. So many times, I remember I once asked uh, one of my rabbeim when I was uh, young and clever, 
And why do they, you know, you ask somebody how he feels, he says, Baruch Hashem. What kind of answer is that? Say, you know, I feel good, I don't feel so good today, you know, I got to go to the doctor. I'm, yeah. What answer is Baruch Hashem? When uh, one of my grandsons was three years old, he said to me, Zaidi, he said, do you know what God's first name is? I said, no, what is it? He said, Baruch. Because everybody says Baruch Hashem. So he answered me. He said the fact that he can answer you is Baruch Hashem. The fact that he's there to answer you, so you have to bless God for that alone. The fact of gratitude. And uh, we see in the Parsha of the week... Uh, that the Lot uh, is destroyed, Lot is destroyed because of ingratitude. He has no gratitude towards Avraham. Avraham made him a wealthy man. Avraham saved him. Avraham went to war for him. Avraham restored him. He had nothing. Zero. He didn't even, you know, he didn't send him even a card for Hanukkah. Nothing. Zero. The Lord doesn't like ingratitude. Whatever he needs and whatever is essential comes from the Blessed One, Holy One be he, and from no other. And therefore he surely will not be able to afford ignoring the service of the Blessed One because that would be the height of ingratitude. That's the same thing with people. So in our world, it's a different society, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I always mention uh, in, in the, uh, to the young men that I teach, uh, because of the fact that uh, I think it's become more difficult in our time, married life, than it once was, for whatever reason. So the Gemara says that there was a Tana, who had a wife, who was from Rebetzin land. I mean, she was it. She was a shrew. And she even insulted him publicly. Moore says that once when he was saying the, uh, teaching the class, the shir and the yeshiva, she burst in and insulted him. So his Talmudim said to him, give her a get. Divorce her. Get rid of her. He said, give her a get? He said, is it not sufficient that she has borne my children and that she takes care of me and that she saves me from sin? So uh, life is built on gratitude, not always built on ingratitude. So the idea of service of God is gratitude. Now, that's not to say, I don't want to be misunderstood, that's not to say that divorce is not justified at times. But it's only to express a certain outlook, the outlook of gratitude that has to exist between people in a family. Now he talks about money. So he says the two things that people desire are money and physical pleasure. 
Those are the two big industries in the world, right? Finance industry. You hear the ads on the radio, right? If you got extra shekel, come for a private interview with me, you know, I'll show you how we make more money, right? So more money has no limit. As I'll say, Misha Yeshlomona wrote to Masai, and the U.S. 100 wants 200. There's no end to that. So, and the second thing is physical desires, right? Good time, pleasures, which leads to an immoral world because there's no limit to a good time either. And the truth of the matter is it's very hard to have a good time because... Uh, Unfortunately, all of your problems come with you to have a good time. I used to see it in uh, my synagogue that uh, people, Saturday night, you know, so they went out to have a good time. So they have to drive, it's three and a half hours in the car, back and forth to have the good time. It costs like four or $500 to have the good time. You come home dead tired, you got to drive the babysitter home to have the good time. By the time you're done, you didn't have such a good time. It's hard to have a good time. Klolo Sheldover, he says. He discusses here all of the, the problems that, uh, that people fall into because of money. Let us summarize. Just as the desire for money is great so too are the obstacles it places before us. A person must probe deeply and with great thoroughness to completely cleanse himself of them. And if he purges the desire as well, he may regard himself as having attained a lofty elevation. Now, Judaism does not preach poverty. We are not Christians. We do not preach poverty as a way of life. On the other hand... Money has to be put into the proper perspective. J.M. in the A.M. Thursday morning, Rabbi Beryl Wine, speaking of Mesilas Yeshurim, we will get to the conclusion of that lecture uh, coming, excuse me, coming up in the 7 o'clock hour here at the J.M. in the A.M. Thursday morning on this August the 8th, day number 7 in the month of Anachamav, the year, of course, 5 7 Seven nine Tufshin Ayin Tess. We'll do our news from Israel coming up, and of course the uh, the news from Israel today, dominated by this incredibly sad and uh, angering story of the nineteen year old Dvir Sorek who was murdered. The Jerusalem Post writes, Dvir Yehuda Sorek, 19 years old, was murdered in a terror incident Wednesday night. He was the cornerstone of the Machanayim Yeshiva where he studied and a much-loved member of the institution. The dean of the Yeshiva, Rabbi Vilk, said that Sorek had been a kind and gentle person who was concerned for the environment and kind to every living thing. He looked on everyone very kindly. The difference between the way he lived and the way he died is too much for us, he told the Jerusalem Post. It is very hard to grasp. Sorek is the son of Yoav Sorek, the editor of the magazine Hashiloach. His grandfather, Rabbi Benjamin Harling, was killed by terrorists who shot a group of tourists near Har Eval in the year 2000. 
Elohim, meaning uh, Yehuda served as a gabai in the yeshiva. The rabbi described him as the cornerstone of the yeshiva. He was returning from a trip to Yerushalayim, back to the Machanayim yeshiva between Efrat and Migdal Oz and Gush Etzion after having purchased some books for his rabbis as an end-of-year gift to them on behalf of his classmates. He was from Ofra, was, an IDF, was in the IDF uh, Hesder program. Uh, he is considered to be a soldier by the IDF. He had earlier messaged his Chavruso what time he would be returning for their uh, study session and said that the concerns of the yeshiva were almost immediately aroused when he failed to show up on time. Vilk said the students were extremely upset by the murder of their fellow students and that he and the rest of the staff have been speaking with them in the wake of the incident. My pain is the same as theirs, and my ability to deal with it is not much better than them. I'm not coming as someone who knows how to deal with this. He said the students and rabbis had sung together lamentations and songs from the high holidays during the night and then prayed shacharit at sunrise, which Vilk described as a very strong and painful experience. Rabbi Kenneth Brander, president and Rosh Hashiva of the Ortora Stone Network, of which Machanaim Yeshiva is a member, said that the organization was in mourning over the atrocious murder. Brander said Sorek was much loved by his friends and rabbis and noted that he was murdered while he was helping his fellow students by volunteering to go and buy the gifts for their rabbis. Rabbi Brander will join us. He's been a guest of ours many, many times, as you know. He'll join us in the 8 o'clock hour this morning here at JM and the AM, and uh, we, collectively around the world, even though we're not in Israel and we're not part of the yeshiva and we did not know him personally, but of course, the collective Jewish heart feels uh, a degree of pain today, this morning, as we read about, hear about, and speak about the murder of Dvir Sorek by a terrorist in the Gush Etzion region. It is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web, at com on the NachumSegal Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. Galit, it's on the background. I remind you that we have a um, very, very inspiring Tisha B'Av program that we are going to be presenting this coming Sunday. On Sunday, starting at, uh, well, Shachris begins at 825 for those who'd like to go and attend. Shachris is at 825 at the New Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. The program is free admission. Men and women are invited, and the entire program will be live at NahumSiegel.com and, of course, on the NSN app. Kinnis will be explained starting at 915 Sunday morning by Shlomo Y. Siegel. Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Elio Sonnenschein, and Rabbi Yosef Siegel. At 12.15, Mayor Simcha Siegel with thoughts about Tisha B'Av, and at 1 p.m., Rabbi Yaakov Lairfield with thoughts about Tisha B'Av. Mincha will be at 2 o'clock. Everybody's invited to the entire program, but again, this is what we are presenting, and we certainly highly recommend it uh, to those who want an inspiring Tisha B'Av program. It'll be on NachumSiegel.com. You'll be able to watch it on your browser. It'll be on the NSN app. You'll be able to listen from anywhere around the world. I certainly hope you'll join us on Sunday. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday follows next. We say Boker Tov from JMM. Galitzal, Shalom Rav, Khan Rani Ovnai, Imashiko Ershav. 
פיגוע דקירה בגוש עציון. רב טוראי דביר סורק, בן 19, יובל למנוחות הערב בשעה שמונה בבית העלמין האזרחי בעופרה. בצה"ל ממשיכים בחיפוש אחר המחבלים. כתבנו הצבאי צחי דבוש מדווח מזירת הפיגוע. ברחבי יהודה נמשך המצוד אחר המחבלים הנמלטים. כוחות חיל רגלים של צה"ל הוקפצו לתגבר את אוגדת איו"ש. בצבא נערכים להימשכות של מבצע החיפושים אל תוך סוף השבוע, ולכן הוכרז עוצר יציאות בפיקוד המרכז. גורם צבאי טוען כי ייתכן שמבצע החיפושים יימשך זמן רב, וכי סביר שהמחבלים נעזרים במשתפי פעולה. ובארגון הטרור חמאס בירכו על הפיגוע ותקפו את מנגנון התיאום בין ישראל לרשות הפלסטינית, מדווח כתבנו דורון קדוש. דובר חמאס, חאזם קאסם, מסר בשם הארגון כי הפיגוע מוכיח את כישלונה של ישראל במניעת ההתנגדות ואת כישלון מנגנון התיאום בין ישראל לרשות הפלסטינית. עוד אמרו בחמאס כי הפיגוע הוא התגובה הטובה ביותר על הניסיונות לספח את הגדה המערבית. תגובה זו מצטרפת לברכה שהגיעה מוקדם יותר מהג'יהאד האיסלאמי. בבל"ד הגיבו על החלטת היועץ המשפטי לממשלה להעמיד לדין את המפלגה ואת חברת הכנסת לשעבר חנין זובי וטענו מדובר ברדיפה פוליטית. כתבתנו לענייני משפט מוריה אסרף. מנדלבליט הודיע היום כי הוא החליט להגיש כתב אישום בכפוף לשימוע נגד המפלגה ונגד חברת הכנסת לשעבר חנין זועבי על עבירות זיוף בבחירות 2013. במפלגה הגיבו לפני זמן קצר ואמרו בל"ד דוחה בתוקף את האשמות נגדה ונגד זועבי מדובר בצעד נקמני של רדיפה פוליטית לשון התגובה. ועדת הבחירות המרכזית דנה בשעה זו בעתירה נגד הצבת מצלמות בקלפיות בערים ערביות. נציג הליכוד בוועדה, חבר הכנסת דוד ביטן, טען במהלך הדיון, המצלמות יעזרו לקיים בחירות הוגנות. הטענה של המשטרה הייתה שהיא לא יכולה להגן על האנשים. מה זאת אומרת היא לא יכולה להגן על האנשים? זה בדיוק כל העניין, שאתם צריכים לשים כוח מספיק בקלפיות הבעייתיות, על מנת שאנשים ירגישו בביטחון לעשות את העבודה שלהם כחברי ועדת קלפי. אם יהיה פתרון שהוועדה תיתן, שמניח את הדעת, אנחנו נאבד את זה. אנחנו לא מחפשים... לצלם אף אחד, אנחנו לא מחפשים לתייג אף אחד, זה לא, אנחנו רוצים שיהיו בחירות הוגנות. סערת מחוז ירושלים, תאגיד השידור כאן הודיעה כי יפסיק לאלתר את העבודה עם חברת קוד התקשורת, וזאת בעקבות האירועים סביב הסדרה. מדווח כתבנו לענייני תקשורת אליאב בטיטו. לאחר שנחשף כי במהלך צילומי הסדרה הושתל רובה M16 בבית משפחה במזרח ירושלים, ולאחר שהסדרה הורדה מהאוויר, מודיעים כעת בתאגיד השידור כי ינתקו את כל קשריהם עם חברת קוד התקשורת שהפיקה את הסדרה. בהודעה מטעמם כתבו, אין מקום ואין סובלנות לשרים ולהפללת אנשים חפים מפשע, כך לשון ההודעה. ומזג האוויר למחר, חם והביל. אלה החדשות שעורך רועי ולד. J.M. in the A.M. Thursday morning, and it is time to conclude Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on the topic of Mesilas Yesharim from his uh, series entitled Essential Classics. This is J.M. in the A.M. He says here, There is not a person, no matter what his circumstances, whether he be poor or rich, healthy or sick, who does not perceive daily numerous wonders and acts of benevolence in his situation. A wealthy person or a healthy person is indebted to the Almighty automatically for his good health, for his wealth. A poor person is also indebted, for even in his poverty, he is still sustained by the eternal miraculously or wondrously and has not allowed him to die of hunger. 
And the same thing, a sick person is strengthened during his relentless sickness and suffering. And the Lord does not allow him to descend immediately to the grave. It is the same thing of a similar nature, which means there is not a single person who should fail to recognize one's indebtedness to the Creator. Here he gives the idea of not being kofui tova, of ingratitude. Ingratitude is the supreme sin in Jewish life. The whole idea of respect to parents, respect to teachers, is based upon the idea of gratitude. Because whatever my father and mother are, they gave me life. Without them, I'm not here. So gratitude is the famous foundation of Jewish life. And that gratitude to people and gratitude to the Creator. So many times, I remember I once asked uh, one of my rabbeim when I was uh, young and clever, why does he, you know, you ask somebody how he feels, he says, Baruch Hashem. What kind of answer is that? Say, you know, I feel good, I don't feel so good today, you know, I got to go to the doctor. What answer is Baruch Hashem? When uh, one of my grandsons was three years old, he said to me, Zadie, he said, do you know what God's first name is? I said, no, what is it? He said, Baruch. Because everybody says Baruch Hashem. So he answered me. He said the fact that he can answer you is Baruch Hashem. The fact that he's there to answer you, so you have to bless God for that alone. The fact of gratitude. And uh, we see in the Parsha of the week uh, that the Lot uh, is destroyed. Lot is destroyed because of ingratitude. He has no gratitude towards Avraham. Avraham made him a wealthy man. Avraham saved him. Avraham went to war for him. Avraham restored him. You know, nothing. Zero. He didn't even, you know, he didn't send him even a card for Hanukkah. Nothing. Zero. The Lord doesn't like ingratitude. Whatever he needs and whatever is essential comes from the Blessed One, Holy One be he, and from no other. And therefore he surely will not be able to afford ignoring the service of the Blessed One because that would be the height of ingratitude. That's the same thing with people. So in our world, it's a different society, so I don't want to be misunderstood. But I always mention uh, in, in the, uh, to the young men that I teach, uh, because of the fact that uh, I think it's become more difficult in our time, married life, than it once was, for whatever reason. So the Gemara says that there was a Tana of Yesi who had a wife, who was from Rebetzin land. I mean, she was it. She was a shrew. 
and she even insulted him publicly. Mimar says that once when he was saying the, uh, teaching the class, the shir and the yeshiva, she burst in and insulted him. So his Talmidim said to him, give her a get. Divorce her. Get rid of her. He said, give her a get? He said, is it not sufficient that she has borne my children and that she takes care of me and that she saves me from sin? So uh, life is built on gratitude. Not always built on ingratitude. So the idea of service of God is gratitude. Now that's not to say, I don't want to be misunderstood, that's not to say that divorce is not justified at times. But it's only to express a certain outlook, the outlook of gratitude that has to exist between people in a family. Now he talks about money. So he says the two things that people desire are money and physical pleasure. Those are the two big industries in the world, right? Finance industry. You hear the ads on the radio, right? If you got extra shekel, come for a private interview with me, you know, I'll show you how we make more money, right? So more money has no limit. Chazal said, Misha Yeshlomona wrote to Masai, and he who has 100 wants 200. There's no end to that. So, and the second thing is physical desires, right? Good time, pleasures, which leads to an immoral world because there's no limit to a good time either. And the truth of the matter is it's very hard to have a good time because, uh, unfortunately, all of your problems come with you to have a good time. I used to see it in... Uh, my synagogue that uh, people, Saturday night, you know, so they went out to have a good time. So they have to drive, it's three and a half hours in the car, back and forth to have the good time. It costs like four or $500 to have the good time. You come home dead tired, you got to drive the babysitter home to have the good time. By the time you're done, you didn't have such a good time. It's hard to have a good time. Klolo Sheldover, he says. He discusses here all of the, the problems that, uh, that people fall into because of money. Let us summarize. Just as the desire for money is great, so too are the obstacles it places before us. A person must probe deeply and with great thoroughness to completely cleanse himself of them. And if he purges the desire as well, he may regard himself as having attained a lofty elevation. Now, Judaism does not preach poverty. We are not Christians. We do not preach poverty as a way of life. On the other hand, money has to be put into the proper perspective. And if it is not, it destroys us. I have been witness to so many families destroyed by wealth. And especially if uh, 
the father dies and uh, the brothers feel that, that the distribution was not equitable between them, so then there's no limit and the, to the lawyers and the lawsuits and the Dine Torah and the fact that the cousins then don't speak to each other. I know families that it goes down three, four generations. So if the man would have died poor, they would, they, they, everything would be fine. But the problem is that they each had $15 million anyway. Uh, but he left four uh, buildings to one and three buildings to the other, and so that's it, right? Many are able to become pious by very many branches of piety. Here he talks to us, Dugri, right in the pulpit. Yet when it comes to money, they are not able to reach any sphere of perfection. Kashras and Shabbos and everything is perfect. But when it comes to money, you can't, can't, can't deal with, with the temptation. Can't deal with it. And now he talks about physical pleasures. And basically, he says, in life, one has to drive defensively. Don't, don't put yourself in situations with temptation. By applying the rule to the area of promiscuity, the sages therefore prohibited anything that is a form of promiscuity or that resembles it regardless of the medium involved, whether it be physical contact, sight, speech, hearing, and eventually even thought. And therefore, the Torah prevented, he said, obscenities in speech. The Torah prevented frivolous conversations. If one were to whisper in your ear and tell you what our sages have said about obscene speech was only meant to frighten people away and prevent them from sinning, and that this only pertains to a hot-blooded person whose obscenities arouse him to desire, but that is insignificant regarding someone who merely says them in jest, tell him, you are speaking the words of the evil inclination itself. The verse of the Torah mentions neither idol worship nor adultery nor killing, but rather speech, flattery, slander, vile language, obscenities. All of these are transgressions of the mouth that relate to speech. And therefore the truth is that our rabbis of blessed memory have said that the uttering of obscenities is literally the promiscuity of speech. And although there is no punishment for these sins, nevertheless they are forbidden in their own right apart from the role they cause in leading one to transgress.
and that's Chofetz Chaim's Shvarim. And that's why the books were written in the late 1800s, because the Mitzil Yushorim came out 100 years before. Why didn't somebody write the Shulchan Aruch and Loshan Aruch 100 years earlier that were Gedolim that were as great as the Chofetz Chaim in previous generations? But he lit the match. And because he lit the match and it was studied so widely in Lithuania, so people followed up on it. Finally, he says, great idea. Finally, the only one blessed be he loves only those who love Israel and Jews. To the extent that one increases his love for Israel, God will increase his love for that person. It's hard to love Israel. It's hard to love Israel, the state. It's hard to love Israel, the people. It's hard to love Israel, you know, the person that's sitting next to me. Nevertheless, the measure of how much one human being can love another human being is the measure of God's love for that person. Now, for instance, Christianity is a religion built on love. But uh, that love uh, turns out to be murderous throughout history. What we mean by love here is how you treat others. And I think it's important to understand that in all the turmoil of this week, where uh, unfortunately uh, uh, we are the losers on all fronts. The true shepherds of Israel whom the Holy One, blessed be he, holds dear are those who sacrifice themselves for the people of Israel, beseeching and laboring on behalf of the peace and well-being of their brothers constantly standing in the breach to pray for the repeal of harsh decrees against them and for the gates of blessing to open wide on their behalf. This can be compared to a father who loves no one more than the person who has shown genuine love towards the father's sons. Human nature attests to this. He says that was the task of the Kohen Godol in the Beit HaMikdash to physically show his love to the Jewish people. And he said that is the task of all Jews to be able to somehow achieve that level of loving others. Again, this book uh, is uh, a bestseller but it's not just a bestseller. It is a book that has influenced generations of Jews, especially Jewish scholars. I mentioned the Musser movement, Lithuanian Jews, but it's today it is all over the Jewish world. There are many more things in the book. I just want to conclude uh, with, uh, so to speak, his final words. And you, my dear reader, I realize that you would recognize, as I do, 
that in this work I have not come to the end of all of the ideas regarding piety, and that I have not said all that can be said, for there is no end to the matter or limit to one's reflections. But I have said something about each particular component of the brysa of this ladder upon which this work has been based. May this serve as a beginning and a gateway to a broader study of these matters, since their structure has now been revealed to you and their paths have been exposed before your eyes, allowing us to walk securely along them. In reference to things of this nature, it has been stated, the learned person will learn and increase his knowledge, and the contemplative person will acquire greater profundity. And one who seeks to be purified will be assisted from heaven, for the eternal will impart wisdom from his mouth, will come knowledge and understanding to that person, to direct each person's path before the Creator so that he can safely escape the maze. This concludes this lecture by Rabbi Beryl Wine. J.M. in the A.M. with Misilas Yesharim presented by Rabbi Beryl Wine. Quite a presentation, and I thank him very much. Information about Rabbi Wine's lectures, and if you go online, you'll see an incredible catalog of titles. 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN. Also, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. RabbiWEIN.com. We are going to continue in this series. We have the uh, Essential Classics uh, series. Chovos Halvavos is going to be our next our next presentation that's coming up uh, later on. First, Rabbi Goldwasser. After that, we have a, a special guest with us live via telephone. Rabbi Brander is going to join us in the 8 o'clock hour. Many of you are aware of the fact that in Israel... Uh, Devir Sorek, 19 years old, was murdered. Funeral's taking place tonight, about uh, five hours from now, in his hometown of Ofra. The stabbing took place in the uh, Gush Etzion area. He is a um, student at one of the schools under the Ortora Stone banner, and Rabbi Brand is going to join us coming up in the 8 o'clock hour here at JM in the AM. Thursday morning was 70 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high temperature of 88. I remind you that the bake sale to support the Lone Soldier Center happens today between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. and then tomorrow between 10.30 in the morning and 3 p.m. at Breezy's Dimples, 554 Central Avenue in the Cedarhurst, New York. That's happening this uh, uh, That's happening this morning, 11 until 6 all day long, and then 10.30 until 3 tomorrow uh, to support the Lone Soldier Center. Uh, this coming Sunday, the live Tisha B'Av program at the New Springville Jewish Center begins with Shachris at 825 on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. It's free admission. Men and women are invited starting at 915 in a program that we're going to be carrying live at NahumSiegel.com and on the NSN app. Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Elio Sonnenschein, Rabbi Yosef Siegel, all will participate in explaining the kinos. And then at 12.15, Mayor Simcha Siegel on thoughts about Tisha B'Av and Rabbi Yaakov Learfield with thoughts about Tisha B'Av. It's all happening this Sunday. Live Tisha B'Av program from the New Springville Jewish Center. Watch it at NahumSiegel.com and on your browser on your phone. 
Listen on the NSN network, on your NSN app, and on the Listen line. And if you want to participate in tefillah, in davening with the New Springville Jewish Center, they'll start chakras at 825 Sunday morning. They'll start mincha at 2 p.m. So keep that in mind. Here in the New York area, according to everything I'm seeing, the fast ends 845 on Sunday. Um, yeah, it sounds a drop late, but acceptable for those of us who are <laughs> very conscious about the time. This coming Sunday, you can make your Tisha B'Av meaningful by joining the 42nd annual Tisha B'Av Mincha service for Israel and Jews in danger around the world, including here in the U.S., Happening this Sunday, starting at 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall, opposite the U.N. at 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in Manhattan. There'll be a full mincha, including Torah reading, by Stephen Exler of the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale will lead. Bring your sitter, your talus, your tefillin, and, and uh, if for information, you can contact 212-663-5784. So Tisha B'Av Mincha, I have been there many, many times before. It is quite nice. 2 p.m. at the Isaiah Wall across from the U.N., 1st Avenue, 43rd Street in New York City. Moving on to some of the things that are happening next week. Uh, first of all, keep in mind that Monday morning on the 11th of Av, Mordechai Shapiro visits here live in studio at JM in the AM. Mordechai Shapiro live in studio, JM in the AM. Again, that's going to happen between uh, between 7.50 and I guess about 8.45 in that area, on Monday morning. So Mordechai Shapiro visits Monday here at JM and the AM. Tuesday, uh, we conduct JM and the AM from the studio here in New York and then head to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh. That show will air on Wednesday between 6 and 9 a.m. This show is done from the plane. If you've never heard it before, make it your business to listen to Wednesday's show. You hear incredible stories. You are amazingly inspired, and it's just—it's just such a privilege. It's such, such an incredible, incredible show. So um, that's six to nine a.m. on Wednesday, and we'll do that show on Tuesday from the plane. Yep, on the plane. And I hope you'll join us for that Wednesday, six till nine a.m. The the intention, assuming the weather's good and the flights land on time. The intention is to be back in studio Thursday morning right here at JM in the AM. Also next week, our friends at the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, are in action on Monday night, the 12th, against Staten Island starting at 7 p.m. It's a home game for the Cyclones. Go to brooklyncyclones.com. Also Monday, our friends at JNF have the Jewish National Fund 12th Annual Golf and Tennis Classic honoring David Schechtman. That's this coming Monday. Information, you can uh, call 516-678-6805, 516-678-6805, or go to the JNF uh, website. There's also a Women's Day at the Clubhouse that day from 11 until 3. You can, again, get information at the same place. So there's a lot going on, and I'm glad you're with us every single weekday morning and every single day here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Always something going on. Rabbi, Doug, drop early for Rabbi Goldwasser. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Echonishmas Harav Zevn, Rabbi Yosef Alevi, and Echonishmas Esther Bas, Rabbi Yosef Alevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk.
Good morning. We learn, These are the words that Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to all of Klal Yisrael. We think that from this particular Pasuk, we learn all the different places where Moshe Rabbeinu spoke to Klal Yisrael. But Rashi says, this really can't be so, because some of the places that are enumerated in this Pasuk do not really exist. Rashi tells us that Moshe Rabbeinu was actually being mochiach, reproaching Klal Yisrael. However, in order not to embarrass them, he hid the Averis by alluding to them in the names of the various places. Rabbi Nechemia says in Sanhedrin that Klal Yisrael was not responsible for each other until after Bnei Yisrael entered in to the Holy Land. Before that, they were not responsible for each other's Averos. As we know, it says, Ko Yisrael, Arevim that each of us are responsible for each other. The Zerashimshan cites the Medrash that tells us that some of the people were merely satisfied that there was an Egel Azahov, a golden calf. Some of the people actually served the Egel Azov, and some of the people hugged and kissed it. We see that there were different levels of doing the Avera. There were different levels of sinning. Not everyone was on the same level. Because of that, we see that since they weren't responsible for each other at that time, they were not equal, and neither was the punishment that was distributed. For that reason, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't strongly delineate those sins that Klai Yisrael had done. In this way, he was saying that not everyone was to be held guilty for what happened in the Midbar. There were those who only transgressed lightly. The great Chavetz Chaim, Zecher Tzadik Livrocha, once said that after 120 years, a person comes before the Beisin Shalmailo, the heavenly court, and the court's going to ask him, Tell me, why were you Mechavel Shabbos? Why did you desecrate the Shabbos? The individual's going to be shocked. He'll answer, I never desecrated the Shabbos. I was never Mechavel Shabbos. In fact, I was very careful every day to learn Hilchus Shabbos, the laws of the Shabbos. The Basin will answer, That might be true. But there were individuals in your community, individuals that were Mechalo Shabbos. You could have reached out to them. You could have prevented the Chilol Shabbos. You could have brought them closer to Hashem. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. Jam in the AM on a Thursday morning broadcast on this August the 8th, day 7 in the month of Menachem Av. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Rabbi Wine's lectures, uh, information at 1-800-499-WEIN. You'll see online at RabbiWine.com that the um, the number of lectures that he has in his catalog is just incredible. So check it out, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, or 1-800-499-WEIN. Tomorrow is the anniversary of the Sabaro bombing. Now I don't know honestly, and this is not a uh, this is not a criticism. 
I don't know what percentage of the people who are listening to this broadcast, or maybe I should put it uh, in a better way, I don't know how many people who are under a certain age who are listening to this broadcast uh, are aware of uh, an event in modern Jewish history that we refer to as the Sabaro bombing. Uh, but if you go back to the uh, if you go back to the Intifada, if you go back to a time when episodes like today's were much more common on a regular basis, um, then you may recall the Sabaro bombing that took uh, many many lives on that day. Um, I mention this because tomorrow we're going to be joined by uh, Arnie Roth, who is uh, the father of one of the victims of the attack. And Rabbi Alchanan Pupko, they are making a uh, a tremendous effort to um, to um, trigger a congressional investigation and review of what is a failed strategy to have the Sabaro bomber brought to United States justice, and um, they'll explain all of it tomorrow. Here at JMNAM. The Sabaro bombing, the Sabaro Pizzeria in Jerusalem, which, by the way, people today don't even realize that, they, that, that thousands and thousands of people walk by it on a daily basis. It's now a bakery on the corner of King George. Um, it happened on August the 9th of 2001. Half of the people killed in that attack that day were children. Two were U.S. citizens, including Malky Roth. A second was a tourist from New Jersey. And um, what has happened in terms of justice for this terrorist, we will explain tomorrow in the 7 o'clock hour, about 7.20 Eastern time tomorrow morning. And we will recall what happened 18 years ago. 18 years ago. And again, for some of us, it is very difficult to believe that it's already 18 years. I again remind everybody this coming Sunday, we're going to be presenting a live Kinnis service from the new Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island. You can watch the service in its entirety at uh, NahumSiegel.com. You can hear it on the NSN app and, of course, on our listen line. They're going to dive in Shachris at the new Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island starting at 825. It's free admission for the program. Men and women are invited. The Kinnis will be explained by a roster of Shlomo Y. Siegel, Shlomo Schwartz, Rabbi Yehuda Kovacs, Rabbi Elio Sonnenschein, and Rabbi Yosef Siegel. Thoughts about Tisha B'Av with Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Yaakov Learfield. Mincha will be at 2 p.m. Again, watch the entire program live at NahumSiegel.com. And on the NSN app, you could hear everything as it happens there at the New Springville Jewish Center. Ahava Aaron Price is with us live via telephone. Ahava Aaron Price is the author of the book On My Own But Not Alone, Practical Advice and Personal Stories. Ahava Rifka Aaron Price, a Detroit native who calls New York home, was married to world-renowned mathematician Dr. Leon Eliezer Aaron Price of blessed memory and is a mother and grandmother. In fact, we know some of her wonderful children. 
She taught English and Judaic studies in the college level for many years, but has more recently chosen to concentrate on her writing. She has gained an active following for her many first-person essays that have appeared in a variety of Jewish publications. Indeed, the responses to her articles on facing life's challenges prompted her to author this book, On My Own, but Not Alone. Ahava Aaron Price, welcome to JM in the AM. And thank you so very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate that. Pleasure to have you on. Uh, there is so much in this book, I, I almost don't know where to start, frankly, because you, you, have, you have a lot of stories, a tremendous number of essays, a lot of guests who chime in on the topic of loneliness and, uh, and togetherness, and then you have a section of practical advice, uh, both on a uh, general social level and on a Jewish level, a halachic and custom-related Jewish level that I think is priceless and really valuable. So I'm not quite sure where to start, but maybe we should begin with your story. Why and how did you get to the point that you wrote a book called On My Own But Not Alone? Well, after I lost my husband, I found myself facing so many new frontiers, social, emotional, halachic, financial, legal, the many of the aspects that are covered in the book. And um, I wanted to share with other women um, all the things that I learned. And a friend of mine said, write a book, which I ignored for a while. <laughs> um, then I realized that <clears throat> many of the dilemmas that I faced were shared by other single women, whether it's divorcees and singles. Uh, do I spend shops at home? Am I alone or am I a guest? Do I buy my own Lulu and Estro? And so the book sort of morphed to include all women on their own, and uh, they're unique but common issues as well. So that's where it was born. <laughs> that's where it came from. How would you describe the, the atmosphere, bad word, but I think you'll get what I mean, the, the, the atmosphere and the, um, and the um, uh, difficulty of loneliness? Well, you know, I think that what this is, what the book tries to get across is that women on their own face challenges that other people don't really uh, understand, and it's not pity they want. It's, yes, they're on their own, they're lonely, but they want respect. They want people to be aware of them without it being that they're a nebuch, that they're something, uh, some sort of flaw. And um, if people reach out to them, then obviously this loneliness and this feeling of being on their own is diminished, but not because they need their sympathy, but because they want to be respected and seen as a person uh, not defined by their status. And I think that that is a major way of ameliorating this issue of... But, but, do, but do we as a group not respect the group I, that you're referring to, or are we not aware that we, we sometimes come off in that manner? I think that, that I think with the best of intentions, uh, and this is addressed in the book by the women themselves in these sections called Women's Voices, where they talk about their own story, which is, I think, a very, very important part of the book, even perhaps even more important than the legal and the financial and the halachic. Um, I think it's a subtle issue, but I think it's often there that there's a sort of, why am I single, or why was there a divorce, or obviously the widow issue doesn't happen. Right. But it's a, um, 
it's a subtlety, and I think that this is very much what, one of the messages that I wanted to come across in the book. Uh, and I think that the women themselves very clearly stated in this very in the narratives that they give about their own story. Ahava Aaron Price is with us. The book is on my own, but not alone: practical advice and personal stories. Um, is it beyond the obvious? I mean, if 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 one if we think that you know we should be reaching out. The people who are alone, men and women, I think you'd say. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, for for Shabbos invites and for you know and 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 to be in touch with them and check on them, you know, every once in a while. What what is it beyond that that we should be keeping in mind? I think it's attitude. Yes, person wants to be invited for Shabbos, but not because they have no one to eat with. They want someone to invite them because you know I really want your company. Um, not a subtle. Well, do you have anyone to eat with? It's the same mess. It's the same invite, but the message and the implication is very different in terms of the person's own self-esteem and the way the and uh, the host views the person. And I think that's really one of the things I really hope the book would impact on society to see the heroines who are women on their own, not to be pitied, but to be admired. And really? most and most of the women you've spoken to who are in that category would say that they're usually they don't have a positive or a very good feeling when they're when they're I don't know visiting or, or I think what, or being I think really um, it's very much that people have the best of intentions and that we are you know we are a, we are warm we are a caring society but there are. You know, subtleties. Um, a single woman doesn't want to be defined by her status. Uh, divorcee doesn't want to feel like her children should feel that they're something the matter because they don't have a father role in their house. So I think actions are amazing and people really care and they really try. I'm not putting anyone down. But I think what women want is to feel that sense of respect. And I think this is where, and there are, and in, Unfortunately, an enormous number of women on their own for whatever reason it might be, uh, and I think we have to become more aware of it. And I think this is one of one of the major aspects of why I wrote the book, as well as, of course, for women to see that they validation and find a story that they can identify with, and see how other women. And basically, it's about you know finding optimism and a feeling of success um, when living with Plan B because. Don't most of us, or some of us, or many of us, uh, don't live the plan that we anticipated, and this is in fact what all these women are dealing with. So that's what it's about. So if uh, if if some of us are living Plan A, you would say appreciated more than ever. And yes, and you know, many women um, and men actually have told me that uh, that their own uh they their own emuno was increased and their own appreciation of their situations and uh and they're were inspired by these women's voices so yes i think it's um it's for everyone <laughs> that's my view and i don't want to harp on this but uh, beyond the uh, I, I don't know it may, it may just be human nature I, I don't know to what degree you know one can uh you know move away from the sympathy angle um, when it comes to trying to reach out to someone who you know is in need, who's in need of company, who's in need of camaraderie, who's in need of, you know, not experiencing a lonely Shabbos or Yontif together. It's I- not 
yeah, sympathy is a great thing as long it's sympathy with respect. That's what I think I'm trying to get across. That the respect for the, the what what this women, a woman or all women who are dealing with whatever their particular situation is. So yes, yeah, sympathy or should maybe we could use the word empathy to understand. And um, it, people are amazing to women on their own, but right. again, it's it's a a subtle. Attitude, I think. All right, I think we've gotten to a very good place on that initial issue. I like that. On my own, but not alone, Ahava Aaron Price is with us. Practical advice and personal stories. Um, how did you decide? Most people, I think, in your situation, especially because you have this ability to 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 write and to communicate in this manner, would take on this topic. You know, uh, 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 essentially uh, yourself. Would you know? Would, the entire book would be would be yours. You've reached out and you've included so many different voices. Is that because you feel that you have a unique situation and there's so many other unique situations that have yes. to have a first-hand account? Absolutely. Every woman's story is unique. Uh, I was, well, you were sort of blown away by some of the women, the narratives, what women had to cope with far beyond any challenges that I had. Uh, and I reached out because I wanted a, a reader and all readers to be able to scan the pages and find a story that they can identify with. And that's extremely validating. And I know in challenging situations, other people's words have touched me and given me a certain amount of, uh, for lack of a better word, right. or, um, and that's what I was looking for. So I did reach out, and certainly I felt that obviously a person still needs a rub of their own. They still need a lawyer, but sometimes you... You just don't even know what you're supposed to be asking, and there's so, so obviously I wanted this to be a sort of full, far beyond my own personal capabilities to give people information and chizuk and uh, validation. I uh, I'm almost ashamed to ask this. I don't remember how long ago did your husband pass away? Uh, nine years uh, in a month. It's already nine plus years. Wow. Um, the, does the uh, does that does the, does the pain uh, ever dissipate? Does it? Uh, th- does does life ever get back to? I know it's impossible to be the way it was, but to, you know, in, in your own heart, does it get back to where it was? I think that's um, again a message that I'm trying to get across in the book. That um, yes, obviously the the absence, the void, does not go away, but life can be very positive and filled with joy and uh, and that's that sadness becomes part of what you are, but you can become so much more. You can grow and you can, you can be happy. And, yes, it doesn't eradicate with the loss, but having loss does not preclude being able to find a tremendous amount of fulfillment in life. And I think that's really um, the message that even many of the, the Rabbanim and the Rebetzins and the psychologists want to get across that, um, and then obviously on a personal level, the women, that um, life is not, doesn't just stop. It can go on. It can grow. It can be very beautiful and very fulfilling. And Baruch Hashem, um, I feel that way. And, uh, yes, I like to say you become familiar with the concept of the absence of the person right. or um, waiting for another person, <laughs> waiting for a person. Uh, does it? Who... Does the experience make you a different person? And I'm asking oh, that because 100%. it does, hundred percent. 
<laughs> because uh, w- once both my parents had gone, people had pointed out to me that I'm a different person. And I, I wonder, and obviously, and obviously a spouse is much different. I'm not comparing situations, but I'm just wondering if that same type of you know reaction is common. Yes, I think that um, from the women I've spoken to as well, um, there is a certain amount of eventually, not a right away, but a certain self-confidence, a certain strength that you hopefully can pull out from yourself, and then that is where the other people who you are not alone um, kicks in also. Uh, a tremendous amount of, okay, I can do this. <laughs> I can handle this. I can be whole. I can miss what I don't have. But um, I think, uh, yes, I think it's, it's the opportunity, if someone can be positive, if someone can uh, see what is good in their life, then, you know, the world can be a very, very positive place, so if even you're, if it's yeah, if you're not living planet. So if your house floods, uh, even though your husband was much better at it, you, you can go ahead and deal with it. Yes. E- even, though, even, even though you know he's looking down and, and likely laughing at what's happening in your home. Yeah, yeah. You, you find out that you can hang pictures and uh, you can uh, figure out uh, why the furnace isn't going on, or at least you know who to call. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Very good. The, yes, uh, the other thing is, um, I mean, I, again, you know, so many of us, you know, the the inviters, let's put it that way, you know, focus on Shabbos and Yontif. But you've done something in this book that's that's way beyond that, and I think it's brilliant. And that is, you know, you, you laid out for women, um, you know, people who are alone, and especially for women. When a man is alone, he essentially knows what to do in terms of performance of mitzvot on Shabbos and Yontif. Right, yes. But women, a... women do not know how to handle the situation. You've relied on your husband to light Hanukkah candles. You've relied on your husband exactly. to hand you the lulav and esrog that, that you never thought you'd have to buy in your life, and, you know, you, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a million examples of it. A million. And, 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 you, and they come at you from all sides when you least expect it. And it seems you covered most of them in that section, frankly. It's a really valuable section of the book. Well, you know, we based it um, on uh, women who were... I've spoken to women who sat at my Shabbos table, and I asked them, what are questions you want, what are the questions that, that come up? And um, they gave me, really, that's really what was, it's a Q&A, Rabbi Daniel Neustadt answers some of them, a lot of them, and um, it was spawned by the women themselves, and that's why I think it's so encompassing. Uh, yeah, and a lot of it's covered. I mean, you have so much in there. And by the way, I think, that that section is really good as well for a woman who's single and not yet married. Oh, 100%. Especially uh, one, one living on their own. Yes, um, yes, the, definitely. I would like to think that um, many aspects of the, the hashkafa, the discussions by Rabbi Yaakov Bender or uh, Rabbi Tzmei Kohn are very much uh, helping or geared to women dealing with their status, whether net, of not being married as yet, and I think that's a very important aspect. You you even have on page one eighty nine what to do when Tisha B'Av falls on Shabbos, <laughs> which, which, okay. which is. Ex- well, if you must know the truth. I didn't even know that. Yeah, which is. Ex- <laughs> I actually don't remember. Which is extremely. Okay, ex- we'll to, uh, which is extremely uh, timely to say the least. Yeah, no, there have been moments where I said, "Oh, I want to. I'm going to go to uh, someone for Shabbos. I want to drive. What do I do about candles?" And my daughter said. Look in your book. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's funny. About about a half hour before Mincha every Shabbos, 
the females in my home say to me, what time is Shabbos over? You know, <laughs> because obviously I'll be there after shul ends. And I, saw that, and I saw that, I said to myself, my gosh, if I wasn't around, would they know what Shabbos is over? <laughs> As I'm sure you, can. you just can't even imagine <laughs> the number of questions that we just take for granted until suddenly like, oh, hmm, <laughs> now what? <laughs> yes, so uh, we tried, but as I said, I tried, we, I tried to, because of the questions that women brought up to me, they, they were addressed. So um, I, I hope that it's been, there's probably things we have to we I'm, miss. I'm but. telling you, on so many levels, the, the stories, uh, learning how to cope, dealing with loneliness or just being alone, because I know loneliness is much worse than just being alone, Right. Uh, and all the general questions that you ask and answer in the book, uh, it, really amazing stuff, and I highly recommend it. Anybody out there, obviously, in this situation, it's for you, but I think others as well. I myself appreciated it greatly, uh, never even really considering uh, what goes on on the other end of these uh, I- invites and encounters. Uh, so I highly recommend it. It is a Shar Press Missouri Publications release. You can go to artscroll.com. Uh, on my own, but not alone. Practical advice and personal stories by Ahava Aaron Price. Um, I, I, how long has this been out already? Uh, since the beginning of June. Good reaction. Very good. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Just I, I could so see validating. it. Every page is valuable, so I could see it. Uh, good luck. Good luck with the book, and good and good luck this Shabbos uh, as you go into Tisha B'Av. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you so much. It was delightful to speak with you. A pleasure. I have Aaron Price. The book is called On My Own but Not Alone. Check it out. Artscroll.com has it. In addition, probably to many, many, many other places that have it. Uh, check it out and enjoy. Very, very valuable. More coming up here at JMN. We're going to speak to. Um, Rabbi Yehuda Landy about his brand new book. Rabbi Brander is is scheduled to join us. He'll be calling in um, as we uh, continue to mourn. The entire Jewish world continues to mourn the murder of um, of Yoav Sorek, the 19-year-old who was murdered in the Gush. So all that is coming up. Keep it right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Beryl Wine on Chovot Halvavot from the series Essential Classics here at JM in the AM. Good evening, everyone. Tonight uh, is the uh, final lecture in this series on the four great uh, classical books of Musar of Ethics. So uh, we have discussed... uh, Earlier, the Shari Tshuva of Rabbeinu Yonah, and uh, we have discussed the Masilas Yeshorim, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, and the Orchus Sadikim, which uh, the author is anonymous. And tonight we are discussing the Chovo Talavovot by Rabbeinu Bachia ben Yosef Ibn Pakuda. Uh, this book differs and the other three in the fact that it it was not written as a book of ethics. It was not written as a book of Musar. The Shari Tshuva is the gates of repentance, so it was written, uh, so to speak, to make you feel bad. Points out uh, the need for repentance and how to do it. And the Mesils Yushorim, is also written in that style as to how to ascend 
to great spirituality and to uh, service of God. And the Orchot Tzadikim is also written in that vein. This book is a different type of book completely. And uh, I want to discuss with you the background to it because contrary to all belief, what we would like to believe, that we are not influenced by the outside world and that our uh, uh, traditional way of life is pristine and that if uh, Moshe Rabbeinu descended today, uh, he would recognize us and we would recognize him. That's true in the core mitzvot and Torah, etc. But there are a lot of things that he would not recognize. It doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means that it's 3,500 years later. And a lot of things have happened. So, uh, in order to understand this book, we have to understand a little about the Islamic society uh, that governed Spain and the Middle East in the 11th century. This book was written in about 1040. And uh, Bachia lived in Saragossa in Spain. So he's a Spanish Jew, uh, but he was a noted philosopher. He was not a rabbi. He had no public position. Uh, he was not a judge. He was not a Dayan or a teacher even. And uh, he uh, was extremely well-versed in uh, Greek and Islamic philosophy. Now, I've pointed out to you before that philosophy is not such a big deal by us any longer. It's not at the top of the list of uh, courses that we study or uh, fields uh, that we specialize in. But in the Middle Ages, uh, philosophy reigned supreme. And the philosophical debates and philosophical debates and questions were the core of any belief, any faith. And therefore, we find uh, in the Catholic Church, in the Christian world, uh, that eventually Thomas Aquinas uh, reigned supreme because he was able to reconcile Aristotle's philosophy to Catholicism. In the Muslim world, there was a man, Ibn Rashid, and Lahavdul in our world, uh, the Rambam and others, the Ralbag, uh, Rabbi Yosef Halbo. There's an entire literature which uh, today is uh, not, it's not very popular. And to a great extent, it doesn't speak to us because we're not bothered by uh, the differences between Plato and Aristotle. Uh, that doesn't disturb us. And uh, science has taken over the role of describing the universe to us, a role that originally was filled by philosophers. So what do we need it for? And the fact that philosophy uh, never comes to a conclusion after you've done studying all the philosophers, you still don't know uh, much more than when you started. J.M. in the A.M., Rabbi Beryl Wine is uh, 
a few minutes into the lecture about Chovo Talavavot from the Central Classics series, and of course we will continue with his presentation on that very important work coming up right here at America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listener-sponsored digital radio, around the world on the web at NahumSiegel.com, on the NahumSiegel Network, and of course on the beloved NSN app. But before we go back to Rabbi Wine, we have a very special guest with us live via telephone. Rabbi Yehuda Landy is uh, author of the book Uncovering Safer Yirmiyahu, an archaeological, geographical, historical perspective. Rabbi Landy is a known Talmud Chacham who has thoroughly studied Tanakh and Midrashim. His thirst for understanding the ancient reality brought him to explore the relevant archaeological, geographical, and historic material. As a tour guide licensed by the Israeli Ministry of Tourism, he's often touring and exploring ancient sites throughout Eretz Israel. He travels worldwide for the purpose of studying related artifacts stored in world museums. He's traveled and toured Jordan numerous times for the sake of researching the land of Ruven and God, as well as Edom, Moab, and Ammon. This series is his attempt to produce in-depth, high-quality literature on Tanakh fit for the Jewish religious public. Rabbi Yehuda Landi, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning to everyone. It is timely with what we're going to be doing on uh, Saturday night and Sunday that uh, we're speaking this week about Yermio. Am I right? That is correct. Yermio was the uh, Navi uh, during that period of uh, the destruction of the first base of Mikdash. I always wonder, you know, the, the debate about the man making the times, times making the man. Uh, what Was he suited for the uh, depressing and difficult times of Jewish history, and that is why uh, he was, uh, you know, such a noted prophet during that time. If if times were better and more hopeful, would we be knowing as much about Yermio? Oh, that's a very, very tough question. Um, you're asking from an archaeological point of view. No, you know, the fact more that, more from a personality point of view. He has um, he has a reputation as being a certain type of prophet with certain type uh, with certain types of news and warnings for the Jewish public. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not a field that I dealt with uh, too much. You're having <laughs> a Barbanel at the beginning of the Sefer who uh, the, the pasuk says Yemiel began his nevuah as being a nar. And uh, most of us learned that to be a young age, inexperienced. Right. And the Abarbanel attributes, like, the lack of proper order in the Sefer, it's not in chronological order, to Yemiyo's inexperience. Interesting. Uh, the Malvin, though, defends Yemiyo and um, argues with Abarbanel on that issue. Huh, very interesting. So you've gone ahead, and, and now now I hop. Now I get the idea of what you've set out to do, and it's so brilliant. There are so many archaeological findings, much more because I saw your book than I ever thought, and so much geography that we are now entitled to, or I shouldn't say entitled, but now we have the privilege of being able to see and walk through and visit, um, that you're able to bring a Sefer of Tanakh alive to the public. Uh, do you... Th- do you think I've hit it? Do you think? Do you think I've just described your goal pretty accurately? Um, very uh, yes, pretty much. Uh, we have the technology um, 
the you know the geography, the archaeology, and um, exactly people who read this. I also my previous book in English, which came out nine years ago, Purim and the Persian Empire, right. about, on Megillah Esther. People who've read that have told me that uh, the reading of Megillah Esther has never been the same. It suddenly becomes a, a a real thing and an existing thing. What would be a good example? Uh, of an item, of uh, something that has been discovered, something that has been, uh, you know, made known to the public through the archaeological discoveries over the last, I don't know, whatever number of years it is recently, you know, in the last decade or two, uh, that would that that points us directly to the time of Yermio. Um, I would mention um, this didn't even make it into the book because um, it was discovered as the book was going to print um, a, a new location where they found ruins from the time of the Khurban, and that's right outside the old city of Yerushalayim in what was known as the Givati parking lot. Professor Yuval Gadot discovered ruins of a very impressive public building, and um, a, a seal or an imprint of a seal with a person by the name of Natan Melech, Evan HaMelech. Now, Natan Melech appears in... Um, in reference to the days of King Yoshiyahu, who was in the time of Yirmiyahu. Um, over there, he's titled slightly different to the Pasuk, but we assume it's the same person, so we actually can connect to a person who's mentioned in Tanakh from the time of uh, Yoshiyahu and uh, Yirmiyahu. Wow, unbelievable. Um, how far east have you traveled? Have you been, have you been through uh, most of Jordan at this point? Uh, Jordan, I've been about ten times, but I, I would I would have loved to tour Iraq and Iran, but um, at this stage it doesn't seem that that's happening. In my book, though, I uh, use pictures um, by uh, a U.S. Army chaplain who actually served in Iraq, and one day the U.S. government um, was toying with the idea of encouraging Jewish tourism to Iraq by visiting the uh, Jewish sites that. The Jews who lived in Iraq till 1948, um, before they made Aliyah, used to uh, visit. And he toured sites, including the Kever of Yechezkel Hanavi. And uh, so some of those pictures actually made it to the book also. Uh, how much? How, how many areas of Jordan, Because I, I'm asking is that because you've actually been there, how many areas of Jordan have uh, places that are essential to Jewish history? Um, a lot more than people think. Most people think associate Jordan with the city of Petra. Yeah. Um, Petra is a very nice, fascinating place, but um, that is the land of Edom, which is also Tanakh, but not uh, Jewish. Further north, you have sites like um, Harnavo, Mos Rabbeinu. We have Nachal Arnon, which is a beautiful canyon with water. It is mentioned this week's Pasha. We have the Yabok, the story of uh, Yaakov and Esau, where they met. Um, and I've been to Rabat Amon proper, which is the capital of Amon. And one more very, uh, one more very important Jewish site is uh, a mountaintop called Mechvar, which is a very similar story to Masada. Same time, that's already by Cheney, but it's a, re- a very similar story to Masada. The Jews who ran away from Yerushalayim during the time of Chorban by Cheney took refuge on Masada and took refuge on Mechvar. Um, so it's, as I said, it's a fascinating mountain. Many years I just was able to dream of getting there, but, uh, I've been there twice and, uh, it's 
fairly uh, fascinating Jewish side with mikvahs from the days of Bayashini. Unbelievable. Rabbi Yehuda Landi is with us. The book is Uncovering Sefer Yirmiyahu, an archaeological, geographical, historical perspective. Okay, what can you tell us? I mean, you, you know what today is. Today is the seventh day of Menachem Av, which means, you know, generally uh, two nights from now, if not for Shabbos, two nights from now we'd be starting Tishabov already. Tell us about the archaeological findings of the Churban itself. What what evidence do we have? What has been discovered where one can say this literally is something from the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash? Well, in all of, we're talking about the Kingdom of Judea, which is the southern part of Eretz Israel, and all the cities, or I shouldn't say all the cities, but a lot of the cities that existed for hundreds of years during the days of the Kingdom of Yehuda came to an end at this period when the Babylonians captured um, captured uh, Yehuda and destroyed the base of Mikdash. Now, um, two cities mentioned specifically are destroyed by the Babylonians, besides Yerushalayim, of course, are the cities of Lachish and Azekah, um, both near Beit Shemesh. Both have been identified with, with certainty. Azekah, I think as we're talking, is undergoing an archaeological dig. Um, Professor Odette Lipschitz is looking for the ancient gate to Azekah. Lachish has been excavated and uh, is a national park, which is uh, with, with no entrance fee for the time being. And over there, one can actually walk through the gate of uh, the city of Lachish, the same gate that was destroyed in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Wow, unbelievable. Uh, speaking to Rabbi Yehuda Landi, the book is called Uncovering Safer Yermio. Um, I, I, what about, I, there's a chapter that you have about news of the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash and Yerushalayim reaching the exiles of Yechania. So how, how in fact, did that news travel? Uh, we don't know. The Pasuk says, Vayavar Palit. Pasuk in Yechazkel, Vayavar Palit. Palit means the refugee, and he tells me, Huktah uh, the city has been uh, destroyed, and the date for that is the 5th of uh, Teves. Now, we keep in mind that the destruction was the 9th of Av, so we're at least half a year, if not a year and a half. That depends on how you, uh, on the chronology method. But basically, it means it took them at least five months to get to the exiles and tell them the news. Hmm. Um, I assume the exiles were not in the capital city bubble itself. They were probably somewhere out there, um, where they were relocated by the um, Babylonian king. And um, somehow this guy managed to escape from the captors or whatever and, and bring them the bad news. I know that uh, a significant portion of this audience has probably done it, uh, and that is, you know, take tours of Israel with a Tanakh in hand. And I would imagine that as, as you're doing your tours of Israel, whatever the area might be, uh, th- there's never a place you go or never something you're discussing where there's not some reference to Tanakh. Um, that is pretty much accurate. It's correct. Uh, wherever you go in the uh, southern part of the country, from Beersheba, south, uh, from Beersheba area and Arad, Arad is a place where they had a fortress from the days of uh, the Judean kingdom. And uh, yes, all the way up north to Kirchmon and Teldan. Is all uh, the uh, Tanakh description of the extent of Eretz, of, of Eretz Israel be done about Beersheba? Now, Yermio wrote Eicha, correct? 
That is correct. Is there any evidence in the Megillah that he has some optimism? Is there any evidence that he knows that this is now the the depths of the Jewish people and that there's going to be uh, a Yeshua coming at some point? Well, he adds off one person before the last. Hashivenu Hashem Eilechov and Hashuva. I think that's pretty much, you know, um, in in the Yirmiya itself, he 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 prophesizes that the Golas is going to last for seventy years, and then there's hope. So he talks about the hope in uh, in Sefer Yirmiya itself. The entire Sefer Yirmiya is described in the Gemara as Kulei Churbana. It's all talking about destruction. But Prakim Lamed Aleph, Lamed Beis, Lamed Gimel, they have Prakim where he talks about hope, and uh, he says the Golas is going to last for seventy years. Don't think you're going to come back too soon, but in the end, you will come back, uh, which is, of course, what happened. Pretty amazing. The book is called Uncovering Sefer Yermiao, an archaeological, geographical, historical perspective of a Yehuda Landy is the author. It is this, it's a Halpern Center press release distributed by Feldheim. I'm assuming this is available everywhere, right? Yes, it is um, on Amazon as well. Is there a, uh, I mean, you, you talked about the reaction to the, uh, the Purim book. Is there a uh, is is there a buzz about this one so far? Uh, well, I've been speaking in a few places. I'm currently in New York. I um, left my house about a week ago. Spent some time Shabbos in London and Denver and uh, here in New York. And um, wherever I talk, um, I bring a few books to sell. They usually grabbed up uh, right away. And I would guess uh, that I guess whenever you give a lecture, you're showing a lot of pictures as well. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's a PowerPoint presentation where I show the background and how some of the pictures were shot and uh, some of the background history behind the scenes, as they say. The whole thing is pretty amazing. I thank you very much for joining us, and uh, good luck with the book. It seems amazing. Thank you, and we hope, of course, the Beis Amigas will be rebuilt and this will be uh, distant history. Uh, I'm main to that, and I appreciate you saying that, especially now as we get set to observe Tisha B'Av. Rabbi Yehuda Landy, check it out, L-A-N-D-Y, Uncovering Sefer Yermio, an archaeological, geographical, historical perspective. It is uh, what I what I believe we could say a unique approach that is just so incredible, incorporating so much of what we now know in modern times uh, with one of the great uh, Nevi and one of the great prophets in our history. 14 minutes after 8 o'clock on a JM in the AM Thursday morning broadcast. 70 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high of 88. Rabbi Beryl Wines lectures, information available at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, and rabbiwine.com. His lecture on Chovo Talvavot, one of the essential classics, as he calls them, here it is at JM in the AM. So uh, it's not appealing to us because we live, uh, you know, we want to see the practical illustration of our knowledge we want to see, we live in a world of technology, of commerce, of all of these wondrous things. But that's not the world of the Middle Ages. And it's not the world of the great scholars of Judaism that lived, uh, let us say, from the year 1000 till the year 1500 or 1600. They operated in a different world. And that world influenced them. It influenced them in what they wrote and in the necessity of having to write these types of books. Uh, We find in the Torah that the uh, Torah warns us 
that the Jewish people will look around and say, Eicho Yavdu Agoyim How is it that these other nations which are civilized, which are so numerous, which are, so to speak, the rulers of civilization, how is it that they worship their gods in this fashion? So let me also. So let me also doesn't only mean that Jews will be pagans, but let me adopt their intensity, uh, their devotion, their way of serving their gods and apply it to my God. And that has been a constant throughout Jewish history. I'll give you an example. Uh, the Jewish people never saw burqa ladies until the Muslims introduced us to them. So uh, the uh, Eastern European Jewish women, who certainly were modest and pious, uh, didn't wear burqas because nobody wore burqas. But in a society as ours, where a section of the Muslim world imposes burqas on women, so then there are Jews that say, how can it be that the Muslim world is more modest in dress than we are? How can it be that they worship their gods with such an intensity and we don't. So therefore it overlaps to us as well. And this has been a truism throughout Jewish history. There are, uh, you know, uh, less onerous examples uh, to the entire discussion that exists amongst uh, the scholars in the 12th and 13th centuries in uh, France and Germany about uh, whether it's permissible to have stained glass windows in the, in the synagogue. And it's a whole discussion. And naturally, there are at least two opinions. But the Jewish people liked stained glass windows. Why did they like stained glass windows? Because the Goyim liked stained glass windows. There were no stained glass windows in the temple. But uh, when the cathedral in Prague wanted to have stained glass windows, so then the Jews in Prague also wanted to have stained glass windows in the synagogue. Because how could it be that we shouldn't be as nice or as beautiful as they are? And that continues, that's a, that's a stream, a trend that continues throughout Jewish history. So... In the 11th century, the Muslim world is fractured, as you can see, right? And not only the great split between Sunni and Shiite, uh, but uh, within the Sunnis themselves. Now, in our time, all of these splits uh, have turned violent. That's ISIS, that's the Syrian civil war, that's Iraq, that's Afghanistan, it's the Taliban. We are, so to speak, uh, the Jews are, uh, you know, we like to think that we're the center of everything. And most of the time we believe it. But the truth is that we're a sideshow here. 
has nothing to do with us. This has been going on for 1,500 years. It waxes and wanes. It has ups and downs. It becomes more violent. It becomes less violent. After Muhammad died, there was an immediate split in the Muslim world. Who's going to be the Rebbe? And that's where the Sunni and Shiite split occurred. Within the Sunnis, uh, there were a group of people who developed a uh, mystical, very spiritual, uh, ascetic uh, view of uh, the uh, what what Islam was supposed to be. Uh, Islam, on one hand, was uh, warlike; it was sensuous. Uh, it promised all sorts of physical pleasures. But on the other hand, there was a, a philosophy that existed uh, that uh, uh, preached a different type of Islam. And uh, this Sufi type of Islam uh, had a great effect upon the Jews too. Because how could it be that the Muslim world was going to be more spiritual or more philosophical than the Jews. In other words, uh, this uh, this group, uh, uh, which uh, uh, was originally uh, followers of Plato and then uh, were converted to Aristotle, uh, so they saw the world in philosophical terms and in mystical spiritual terms the world is not the world the way you see it there are unseen forces uh, their devotion to prayer their devotion to asceticism to uh, denial of pleasures of the body and this was a, the Sufi they, this was a very powerful group it had a great influence and it had an influence on the Jewish world as well. And therefore, this book, the Chovet al of Rabbeinu Bechaya, so we don't know how to pronounce the Ashkenazim pronounce it Bechaya, it's probably Bachya, it's probably the same, uh, it's a corruption of the name Chaim, Bechaya, to have life. Uh, he uh, wrote this Magnus Opum, this great book, a big book, very difficult book. And uh, he wrote it in Judeo-Spanish. Now, just as the Ashkenazim developed Yiddish, the Spanish Jews developed a language Judeo-Spanish, which was a corruption of Spanish with uh, Hebrew and uh, Jewish influence and Jewish nuance. There was a third language, Judeo-Arabic. The Jews who lived in the Arabic-speaking countries, so they spoke Arabic, but uh, there was a lot of Jewishness in it. So, uh, and what was common to all of these languages 
with common to Yiddish, to Judeo-Spanish, to Ladino, to uh, Judeo-Arabic, is that it was always written in Hebrew characters, always written in Hebrew letters, even though the language is not Hebrew. And that's, for instance, how the Rambam wrote two of his of his three major works were written in uh, Judeo-Arabic and written in uh, Hebrew letters, the Mor Nevuchim and the Pirush Mishnah. Only the uh, Yodah Chazoka was written in Hebrew. Now, there were a family of translators. Translating was a big business because the Ashkenazic Jews could not read or understand Judeo-Spanish or Judeo-Arabic. And uh, books such as uh, the works of Maimonides uh, were sought after. The Ashkenazic world wanted to know what the Rambam had to say. So there was a family in Provence called the Ibn Tibon family especially a father and a son, Ibn Tibon, Shmuel and Yehuda, Ibn Tibon. And they they were marvelous translators. They translated everything. And they were the main translators for the Rambam, though there were other translators as well. Our friend uh, Yehuda al-Kharizi, who's our next-door neighbor here in the next little street, one of the most beautiful little streets in Jerusalem, uh, he was a translator of the Rambam, the Pirish Mishnayas of Seder Zoraim. He translated it into Hebrew. There's an entire cadre of people who are translators. We have that today, right? Uh, great works that are translated into English. The Talmud is translated into English. All of our prayer books are translated into English. Uh, Europe uh, was translated into German, was translated into Yiddish, was translated into Russian, was translated into French, was translated into Italian. So uh, the Chovas Halavovo says we have it today is a Hebrew translation by Ibn Tibon of the original uh, work that was written in Judeo-Spanish in 1040 by Rabbeinu Bachya. Now, translations, no matter how exact, always suffer from the lack of nuance. And many times to really understand something, you have to have nuance. You have to feel what the author wanted to tell you. Uh, Probably that's the difference between the spoken word and the written word. And why many times the spoken word is much more effective, whereas the written word uh, has a more difficult time conveying the unsaid part of what the author wanted you to understand. So with that uh, background, uh, we'll talk now about the Chovot Alvovot. Now, Chovot Alavovot is divided into ten sections. The original Arabic, uh, Judeo-Arabic name was Instructions and Guidance for the Duties of the Heart. But uh, when the, even Tibon translated it, he already took out the Instructions and Guidance, and he just left the words Duties of the Heart 
Chovot Halavovot, the obligations of the heart. Now, you immediately, from the title, know that this is going to be a spiritual book. This is not the Rambam. The Rambam is not interested in your heart as much as he's interested in your mind, in your brain. The Rambam says that the main obligation of a Jew is to know God. And by know God, he means intellectually to come to the level of a connection with God. The Chovetz Alavovos, he doesn't say that at all. First of all, uh, he lived at the time of Rashi. Whether he was aware of Rashi is, uh, is questionable. Rashi was born in 1038. The book was written in 1040. So he's certainly not influenced by Rashi. Uh, but uh, this is written a century before the Rambam. So the Rambam, in essence, disagrees with him. And he says that uh, Judaism, he says, is not so much a matter of intellect to know God as it is a matter of the heart to own and to love him. Now, if you just think about it, you know, without prejudice, uh, that's Hasidus. That was the dis- disagreement between the Hasidim and the Misnagdim. The Misnagdim said, you have to know Torah. Study is the main thing. Talmud Torah, Kenegat Kulam. And the Baal Shem and Rabbi Yisif and Paul Noah and the later Hasidic Rabbeim said, prayer is just as important Spirit is just as important. Emotion is just as important. God wants our heart, which the Gemara also says. Rachmona Liba boy doesn't want our brain. He wants our heart. So there is this uh, dichotomy in how to view what Judaism should be. So <laughs> I was... Uh, I was once in a synagogue for Simchas Torah. It was a very, very non-Hasidic synagogue, to put it mildly. So they marched around the Bima seven times. It took about nine minutes. And uh, that was Simchas Torah. A member of that congregation later uh, experienced Simchas Torah in my synagogue in Muncie which was uh, usually pretty much under control, but Simchas Torah was completely out of control. And in the middle of the third hakafa, he came over to me and he said, Rabbi Wine, what is all the noise about? So it's, it's a, what kind of service are we going to have? Are we going to have an emotional service or an intellectual service? How do we serve God? And that's a debate. And I don't know if one size fits all. But that's a debate that remains today. It reflects itself in many, many different forms in our world. So the Chovos Halavovos, he's looking for the heart. When you look for the heart, then you become mystical. You must. If you're dealing with emotion, then it's something that's beyond logic, beyond rationality, beyond the letter of the law. 
you're looking for something that's ephemeral, that grabs you. And that's the idea of the Chovas Alvovos. But the Chovas Alvovos is a book of philosophy. It's not a book of Musa. Now, the Vale Musa, the Musa movement took portions of the book. They never studied the whole book. The philosophical part of the book, the first uh, two, three uh, gates or sections of the book never were studied in the yeshivas. Shayim in the AM, Ari Barrel Wine is in the midst of the uh, Lectron Chovos Halvavos, which of course we'll get back to. Thursday morning broadcast here at JM the Amber by Kenneth Brander, as uh, this audience knows very well, as president and Rosh Yeshiva of the Artura Stone Network of Institutions. We are also aware of the fact that Yoav Sorek, excuse me, that Devir Sorek, his father is Yoav, uh, Devir Sorek, 19 years old, was murdered uh, by terrorists in the Gush Etzion region, and uh, Devir, a student, in the Machanayim Yeshiva, which is, of course, under the umbrella of Ortora Stone, which, again, we know very, very well. Rabbi Brander is with us live via telephone as the collective Jewish heart feels this extreme pain all around the world after this tragic episode. Rabbi Brander, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you, Nachum. I wish it would be under uh, better circumstances. Uh, that is for sure. Um, I'm not always sure where to begin in conversations like this, so we'll start with this. I'm sure you've had an opportunity to see and address some of the students in the yeshiva. What was your message to them today? Well, I think that like uh, Eicha, uh, I think the first thing you do is, Eicha, how, how did this happen? How can this happen? Which is the permission to ask questions even of God, that how can a, a sweet soul like Devir Sorek, uh, be taken to uh, be taken from us when we need his gentle spirit in this world. Um, but also Ayeka, where are we, and what is our responsibility at this moment? And so, with the students of Machanayim and with the unbelievable rabbinic staff of Machanayim, uh, we are singing together, we are crying together, and please God, we will once again rise together. Um, but it's a time of reflection and introspection, but at the same time, uh, a recognition of the fact that this is also, as you mentioned about Rabbi Wine, this is also chavot, halavavot. This is the obligations of our souls and of our spirit. We're rebuilding the state of Israel with young people like Devere who cared about every human being, about every Jew, about every... Uh, every Arab that lived in the area, but every he would plant flowers around, around the uh, around the yeshiva. Mm. Um, he went he he went after Seder yesterday to Yerushalayim to buy a sefer or sfarim for his ramim for his you know, rabbinic faculty to th- to thank them because the you know the last day of traditional yeshivas today, right, right before uh, Tisha B'av. And he called his night seder chavrusa to say he'll be back in time for for night seder at eight thirty, where he was learning Masechet Sanhedrin, which speaks about the responsibilities to create an ethical world and an ethical society. And uh, when we realized, when the students and the rabbeim realized that he had not returned, so we spoke to all the appropriate authorities, and we found him in the morning. Um, 
hugging the the, the sefer, hugging the book that he had bought for one of his teachers, for one of his rabbeim. Wow. Rabbi Kenneth Brander is with us from Israel. We're speaking about 19-year-old Devir Sorek and the way he was uh, murdered by terrorists and discovered. Um, I, I can't even imagine what his family is going through, and I know the funeral is going to be taking place later today, and I can one can only imagine. But uh, one thing we can relate to somewhat is uh, when there is a serious close chevra and something like this happens uh, to one of them, uh, it is uh, it is a devastating experience. Obviously, it sounds like, and, and someone actually pointed it out, one of his uh, uh, rabbis pointed it out, the dean of the yeshiva said it in one of the Jerusalem Post articles, he was the cornerstone of the yeshiva, that he was uh, such a loved member of the institution. And you just mentioned that the, the, the year this man is coming to an end, one can only imagine how close this whole chevra of young people have gotten. And I just, uh, all I could think of is that uh, as the yeshiva goes through this whole experience, they literally feel that they have lost a very close loved one who was so important to their, to their yeshiva and to their chevra. I think you really articulated it um, very precisely. I mean, we've all come together here. We're talking to each other, sharing words of Torah, sharing memories. Um, our students who uh, are in the army, were some of them who were informed about this, were immediately released, and they're joining us back here at the Yeshiva. Wow. Um, and we received uh, information that maybe the prime minister will be joining us also uh, pretty soon. Um, but uh, I'm not sure whether that will happen or not. It's not really um, something where uh, not clear. he comes, he comes. Right. You know, it's not clear. But uh, the funeral will be in Ofra at uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock uh, this evening, and we'll go together um, and uh, you know, we'll stand together. It's a great loss uh, for our yeshiva. It's a great loss for the Jewish people. It's a great loss for society. Um, but I think you're right. It's a very close yeshiva. It's how many students? Very, how many students are in Machanayim? I'm just curious. Uh, there are 140 students in Machanayim. Not a massive crowd. It's a, probably a very close knit chevra. Very close knit chevra. Very very close knit chevra. Um, and it's 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 a special it's a special group. And, and uh, as, as you mentioned, and as the Rav Shlomo Vilk mentioned, he was really one of the cornerstones uh, of the yeshiva. He was a, a beautiful, beautiful uh, young person, um, very committed, again, to uh, just to the everyday things of life. I mean, learning, but also appreciating every human being. And, and literally, and I, I'm sorry for harping on this, but I'm trying to grasp how this came down in terms of uh, everybody being informed in Israel. He, he literally disappeared last night and was not discovered till the morning? Well, he he disappeared. Again, we were expecting him to come back for night Seder. Right. And, um, you know, after we after the members of the Yeshiva store, he wasn't back in time. They started doing what they needed to do to inform both the Army and the police, obviously after speaking to his parents. And, right. Um, and dealing with all those pieces, which I don't think are necessary to discuss on the air. Right, and obviously um, nobody and, heard from him. Obviously, so the panic, right. panic then, sets in. And then, and then the students, as well as the army and the police, went looking for him. And then we found him in the morning at the uh, forest uh, in the morning. How far is that from the yeshiva? 
Well, he was kidnapped, it looks like, uh, by the Tzomet HaGush, by the, um, by the entrance of the Gush area, um, which enters into, you know, Yeshivat Gush Hachon and Lon Shvut and things of that nature. It looks like he was kidnapped there. It looks like, uh, you know, again, he was, he was stabbed multiple times. How far, and, how far from Tzomet HaGush was he discovered? Uh, he was discovered closer, closer to the um, the beginning of the road that enters into Migdal Oz, Got it. Uh, which has the kibbutz um, and yeshivat and the seminary Migdal Oz Medrashaya, as well as yeshivat uh, Machanayim, which is right opposite, um, right opposite the entrance into Efrat. Rabbi Brander, uh, I mean, we we know what what the collective Jewish community is going to be doing this weekend, uh, the 9th of Av being on Shabbos and the 10th being the day we'll observe what we call Tisha B'Av. Uh, we know that it's the nine days, and we also know, and you know this better than anybody because you've been on this wavelength for the last many, many decades with us, and that is that there is a collective Jewish pain around the world that everyone is experiencing right now, not comparing it to the students of your yeshiva or the family of... Um, of Devere, obviously, but there's a collective Jewish pain that everybody feels. And that's one of the reasons, frankly, why I think people are gathering with us this morning to hear the reaction and to share in this feeling. What can you tell us uh, as a global Jewish community who takes so seriously when just one gentle soul is taken in this manner? What can you tell us as we experience these days together? First of all, I need to say thank you. Um, we need to be together, you know. Shevet achim ba'achayot. We need to we need to be together. And Nachum, uh, I have to be honest with you. I, I've been called by radio with television all over the world. I didn't make one phone call. The only person I reached out to was JM in the AM uh, because you are the radio station. You are the station for the Jewish people, and it's greatly appreciated. And I've said that many times. I need to say it again. Uh, the second piece is that let's understand something. There are carbonate, there are sacrifices when we have dreams. And Devere is a sacrifice for the dream of building the state of Israel, the center of the Jewish future, a state of Israel that must have values um, that embrace all Jews and all of society. And Devere celebrated those ideals, and we will continue to celebrate those ideals. And so as Am Yisrael comes together, if I can make one humble request, let's just be careful about how we talk about others, how we engage with others, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Let's remember that, was, that is the image of Devere, that, was, that is what his life was about, and that's what our life has to be about, because... The same way we asked the word Eicha, how this could have happened, the word Eicha also means Ayeka, where are we? And what, what must we do when there are tragedies like this? And what we must do is speak the dreams to power and realize that we're here to build the state of Israel. And sometimes we still have Korbanot, the Ishe Yisrael. As Tosafot says, the Ishe Yisrael and the Tefillah, represents the physical, the human sacrifices that often need to be brought as we uh, build the Medina Israel.
As his father, Dvir's father said, he, meaning Dvir, had light in his eyes. Someone who had murderous eyes took him away. And if one thinks right. of if one thinks of the depth of that statement, there's a lot there. There's a lot there. Uh, I thank you. I know these are obviously going to be very difficult days. Um, we are thinking of you, and as I said, the collective Jewish heart globally uh, certainly mourns the loss of Devir Sorek. Thank you so much, Rabbi Brander. Thank you. Rabbi Kenneth Brander, of course, he is the uh, president and Russia Yeshiva of our Torah Stone. This is a terrible tragedy, a terrible tragedy, and one of such sadness, such a sad tragedy. I know every tragedy has sadness to it, but this one is particularly, I think everyone feels it because of the circumstances, because of uh, who the victim was and his age and his disposition and his obvious love for life, the way Rabbi Brander just described it, and obviously the brutal manner in which he was he was taken, something that, uh, thank God, most of us can't relate to, but now the his uh, classmates and family and the entire yeshiva and, gosh, I would guess the entire region of Israel and everybody in Israel is uh, thinking of it uh, today as he's about to be laid to rest <clears throat> in Israel. And uh, we think of the 19-year-old Vir Sorek, uh, victim overnight in the gush at the hands of uh, Arab terrorism. Thursday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. We're at a quarter before 9 o'clock. Uh, before we conclude or, or continue with, I should say, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Wine's lectures, uh, his lecture on Chovat Let me just remind everybody that uh, this coming, uh, actually today, uh, today and tomorrow, the Lone Soldier Center, they are the beneficiaries of the bake sale that's happening today at 11 a.m. until 6 p.m. and tomorrow at 10.30 until 3 at Breezy's Dimples, 554 Central Avenue in Cedarhurst. Make sure to go and support the Lone Soldier Center. I also remind you that we are going to be presenting the new Springville Jewish Center Tisha B'Av program. Kinos explanations from five distinguished speakers starting at 9.15. Thoughts about Tishabov with both Mayor Simcha Siegel and Rabbi Yaakov Lairfield starting at 12.15. You can watch all of it at NahumSiegel.com. Uh, you can go to the NSN app and listen. And, of course, you can, uh, you can uh, listen on the listen line. Um, it's 825 Shachris for those who want to dive in at the new Springville Jewish Center on Saxon Avenue in Staten Island. It's free admission. Men and women are invited. Kinos from 9.15 until 12.15. Thoughts about Tisha B'Av from 12.15 until Mincha at 2 p.m. That's what's happening this coming Sunday. A couple of notes about next week. We mentioned that once Tisha B'Av ends and we get back to our music format, Mordechai Shapiro is going to be in on Monday to visit with us here at JM in the AM. Mordechai Shapiro, our guest, is coming Monday at JM in the AM. Um... Tuesday, we're in studio. Tuesday, after JM and the AM, we fly to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh. And uh, Wednesday's broadcast is one you must listen to. Wednesday, between 6 and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in to our Nefesh Benefesh broadcast. We continue with Rabbi Beryl Wine and his lecture on Chovos Halvavos. You're listening to JM in the AM on the Nahum Siegel Network. For God, his existence, he has the famous proof uh, that uh, other philosophers have rejected, but uh, he offered it as a, as a proof that it could not be that a universe as complex as ours and 
he already realized it a thousand years ago how complex it is. What shall we say now that we have uh, an inkling of how complex it is? How can you say that that came about at random? His example is that if you took uh, ink and spilled it on paper, you wouldn't get a book. It would not at random form an intelligent writing. Uh, we would, uh, the example that later was given in our time was that if you had a million monkeys and everyone had a typewriter and they sat for a hundred years typing, you still wouldn't get Shakespeare. So that's uh, a philosophic idea. Uh, that idea today uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't really register in the philosophic world. The uh, whole idea of at random is a different idea completely. But nevertheless, he raises this, and he raises the fact that the belief in God is dependent upon belief in our own soul. In other words, if we know ourselves, that is the gateway to know God. Because he said our soul is a piece of God, so to speak. It is the immortal quality that lies within us. It's our conscience. It's what constantly troubles us. It's why we're never happy. Because the truth of the matter is that in life, uh, there are not that many times that a person is truly happy. In fact, we don't even know how to define what's happy. So he said that because of all of that, uh, the only way that we can achieve this uh, emotional connection to the Creator is by knowing our soul. And he said, knowing our soul is to know our assets and liabilities, our positive points and our negative points, and to know our motivations, and to somehow try and deal with them. So he says the main purpose in life is dealing with ourselves. We think the main purpose is to deal with others or to deal with society as a whole. And he says yeah, the main purpose of life is to deal with yourself. However, he says, people who only deal with themselves are narcissistic. So again, the idea of balance rears its head in Judaism is that part of dealing with ourselves is dependent upon how we deal with others. And that is a uh, philosophic view. And that really was the view of the Balei Musser. That's what they took from this book. Uh, Rabbi Saul Salanter said in one of his famous comments and quips that the other man's olam hazeh is my olam habo. In other words, the other man's physical welfare in this world is the spiritual key for me in immortal life. And uh, this viewpoint, uh, therefore, uh, blended uh, this idea into one philosophy. Uh, this is far different than uh, the Rambam's ideas. The Rambam speaks about our soul, but he doesn't uh, 
But the Rambam generally stays away from uh, spiritual things. The Rambam is meat and potatoes. And Jewish people like dessert. And therefore, we are always searching. And that was the whole idea of Kabbalah. Uh, the Kabbalah is, again, to deal with what we cannot somehow define that doesn't uh, lend itself to any rationality. And Kabbalah placed a great stress on uh, the unity of the soul, the unity of different souls, and the whole idea of reincarnation, all of these things, all because of the fact that we're looking for this emotional attachment to God and the emotional attachment to God is found through self-analysis. Now, once we come to self-analysis, that's where the Musser kicks in. And this is the parts of the book that were most studied and most commented upon and had the greatest influence and made it one of the basic books of the Musser movement. So uh, one of the ideas, uh, he uh, spends a great deal of time talking about hypocrisy. Now, again, if we want to know ourselves, then we cannot be hypocritical. We have to be honest with ourselves. But his opinion is that almost all people are hypocritical. And that even when we do great and good things, we do it... Uh, not out of true motivation, but we do it for hypocritical reasons. And he has a whole discussion of what we call lishma. So there's an idea of Torah lishma, to study Torah for the sake of studying Torah. So what does that mean for the sake of studying Torah? So some people study Torah because they want to become a rabbi, which is a self-inflicted punishment but people do it some people study Torah because they want the fame that goes with being a great scholar but there's a concept called lishma for the sake of it itself and he points out how elusive that is how simply uh treacherous the idea to do something lishma is because you think you're doing it lishma and you got a hundred other reasons that you yourself don't realize that bring you to do it so he says that uh, he doesn't have a magic bullet for it his magic bullet is to realize the hypocrisy to realize the power of hypocrisy to realize how it exists and therefore, in the Musser world, they would try to go to great lengths to avoid hypocrisy. I'll give you an example. In, uh, in the great uh, Musser uh, yeshiva in Kelm in Lithuania, my father-in-law was a student there. So Kelm was famous as uh, a place where you worked on yourself. So in Kelm, they never gave anyone a title. 
when they called up the Rosh Yeshiva for an Aliyah to come to the Torah, they said, Yamod Chaim. They didn't even say his father's name. Not only they didn't say a Ravagon Atzadik. Took away all the titles. By taking away all the titles, they did not mean disrespect, but they meant that they eliminate the hypocrisy. You're not going to get the title. There are no titles. In the extreme sense, we have in the Musa movement that they wrote uh, regarding someone who was deceased. So they said, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, Ulai zichrona Libracha. Maybe, maybe we should remember him for good. Well, you know, that doesn't even register in our time when, uh, you know, uh, titles abound. Rabbi Beryl Wine with the Chovos Halvavos, and we will uh, start tomorrow by uh, getting to the conclusion of this lecture. Information at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. Don't forget, Tishabov service uh, with uh, five explanations, I should say five lectures regarding um, uh, Kinos and the two additional ones with thoughts about Tishabov all happening from the New Springville Jewish Center on Sunday, Tishabov Observance Day. Uh, that's happening on Sunday. And I hope you'll join us. It'll all be at nachomstigl.com and on the NSN app. Uh, make sure to be tuned in. Uh, Shacharis at 825. If you want to dive in at the New Springville Jewish Center on Staten Island, 825 Shacharis. And the Mincha at 2 p.m. 2 o'clock Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Don't forget 2 o'clock Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Bring your towels and tefillin. It is the annual prayer service for Jews in danger around the world, including Israel and the United States. As recent times have proven, unfortunately, yet again. Um, so that's happening 2 o'clock, Isaiah Wall, 43rd Street, 1st Avenue, New York City. Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Heard and listeners, sponsored digital radio, around the world, the web, at On the Nachum Segal Network, and of course, on the beloved NSN app. Wraps up a uh, Thursday for us here at JMM. Tomorrow, weekly update and plenty more. Make sure to be tuned in tomorrow, Erev Shabbos Chazon, right here at JM in the AM. Till then, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.